You're listening to the Pluck Chicken Podcast, where we teach you to stay away from those who say things like this. The first point that we talk to you about being empowered to lead uh, is this, this idea. I want you to know that first, number one, you were born to lead. So you're like, I, I don't see myself as a corporate CEO. I don't see myself as, a, as necessarily an entrepreneur. Some, you do see yourself as that. And you feel like you're trapped in a dead-end role, in a dead-end job. And that you feel that there's more. I, I believe God's going to speak to you and give you visions. He's going to give you dreams about what's next. And then he's going to show you how to gain wisdom as you prepare to move into that. And those who say this. Baptism is intended to be a symbol that symbolizes death into life. It's like a burial followed by a birth. Right. Or this. The Bible says when Jesus held up that bread on that night with his disciples, he just simply said, this would symbolize my body. As well as those who have never studied Greek but want you to believe they have. God's plan is for you and I, his people, to live and walk in power. Now this word power is the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis, it's where we get the word dynamite. It's explosive. It's time now to join your hosts, Pastors Devin Kearns and John Bruss, and whoever else they invite as they continue their quest to train you in properly dividing law and gospel and staying away from the sacramentarians. Well, it is somebody else that we have invited. It is Pastor Oakry and myself today. And Pastor Oakry, let me tell you what I've got in store for you. I've got a big, fresh pile of scubalon for you to poke the stick in and, you know, stir it up a little bit. I've entitled this, Examples in Missing the Point. It's two sermons on the same text. And the reason it's called Missing the Point is because both of them, in my opinion, now I could be wrong, and you, you, you are free to correct me, they miss the point. Now, you've got a pastor in Las Vegas, Vince something or another, and then, uh, and then we've got a lady pastor. I know you like the lady pastors. Well, I do. I enjoy, I enjoy hearing them preach because I usually have... Uh, something to say that's usually quite wrong. So both of them are going to be preaching from Mark chapter 2, and in their defense, at least they read the text, which is uh, something nice to hear. That is that is nice to hear. My, my question for you is, do they miss the mark in different ways? Yes. There's only one way to be right, and there's a multitude of ways to be wrong, and it's always important to be mindful of that. Exactly. Now, before we begin with Vince, let me just let our, our listening audience know this is during COVID, and they are solely online. So what that means is it's a shorter sermon, but there's also no feedback from the audience, which clearly he's used to receiving. With the lady pastor, this is before covid so she's got her an audience, and uh, we'll clearly be able to, to pick up on that. You ready? Controversial statement alert. Here it comes. I'm going there. I think most of us live with watered-down versions of friendship that 
really aren't friendship at all. No, he didn't. Yes, he did. I'll say it again. I think most of us live with watered down versions of friendship that really aren't friendship at all. That is an intriguing rhetorical device to start your sermon. A what? A controversial statement? Right. I'm going to say something controversial? Yeah. Uh, And I've certainly started a few sermons that way. But I would say this. What he's saying is not at all controversial. (laughs) I think most of us are longing for deeper friendships. And I'm sure he's going to soften this as he goes, as you often do. But to say that's super controversial is false. And I can already get a feeling for what he's going to say about this uh, sermon text. And that's not the point of the text. (laughs) This text, he does have good friends that bring him to Jesus. Now, I understand. I have not heard this sermon at all. I know. I know. He he has good friends who bring him to Jesus. I get it. Right. That's not the point of the text. If we're going to focus on the friends over Jesus, we're missing it. Oh, my goodness. You know, you and Pastor Bruss, this is one good thing about being Lutheran, is that you've not heard 10 seconds of this, and he repeated himself. So really, it's five. Even if it is 10 seconds, it's only five seconds. And you have found exactly what he's going to camp out on, and you automatically know that everything he says from here on out is its like a tertiary thing. Like yeah. Jesus is the center, and so the friendship is not even a... A secondary thing. It's it's way out on the periphery. We'll get in a little bit deeper. I think there is a really a really significant place where you can talk about the friends bringing this man to Jesus for what Jesus can do for him. Sure. Well, I uh, think he's going to make a turn here. I think he's really going to focus in on Jesus. I think you're going to be. <laughs> I think you're going to be very very happy. We wouldn't be here if that was the case. But I will say this: I could I could suss out his theme just from his contrary statement and hey even a bad sermon with a good theme is it still has a good theme i can listen to it and be like okay i understand what you're going to be telling me for the rest of this our time together and that's not a that's not a bad thing like if if i was lost as to the point of what he was trying to say from the get-go to the end go (laughs) then we would be in trouble but at least i know what he's going to say All right, let's get back to it. We're doing a series where we're looking at stories from Jesus' life to help us understand who Jesus really is and what Jesus really wants for our lives. And the story we're going to look at today is also going to help us understand what friendship really is. It's in the Bible book called Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, a few days later, when again Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some people came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat above Jesus and I'm sorry, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow 
talk like that. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man, which was a nickname that Jesus called himself, uh, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. All right, so as I think I said earlier, I'm really glad that he read the text. I mean, a lot of guys these days, they they just kind of, um, you know, they almost say, I don't have time to read the text, and so they summarize it. And their summary takes as long as it does to actually read the text. I do find it interesting that the lady pastor, when we hear her a little bit later on, she's going to read the text, and she makes this very, very interesting comment. Towards the end, she says, I'm almost done. <laughs> like, be patient with me. Right. Huh? Like, clearly we don't read this much scripture. You coming from the evangelical church, the scripture reading is incorporated into the sermon usually anyway, right? There's no reading of texts. Yeah, but you have to remember, when we say American evangelicalism, mm -hmm. obviously what we highlight here on the plucked chicken is the absurd and the crazy when we do the sermon reviews. When I was preaching in the evangelical world, it was expository preaching. So we just took a portion of the text for that day. It could have been as short as two verses. It could have been as long as ten verses. So we were a very word-heavy congregation. Whereas in so many of the churches today, and, and listen, ours was rare. Now, listen, I'll be the first one to say we were still heterodox on, you know, some pretty important things. But these churches today, this is why it's so difficult to actually find something for us to review. Whether it's you or Pastor Bruss, Pastor Mike Keel, it doesn't matter. It is so hard to find sermons to review because they're not saying anything. I mean, that's a very fair point, and... If you're not starting in the biblical text, even as a springboard, uh, you're missing an awful lot. And and what what are you going to say that you can even talk about? You're just kind of giving good advice, pious opinions. Well, you mean, I don't disagree with those things necessarily, but it's not preaching. My wife coming out of the evangelical world too, I, I've sat through a few evangelical sermons and yeah, there's, there's not a reading, but there is reading incorporated. And it's usually flashed up on the screen and it it's usually a verse or two here now a verse or two from the, from the Old Testament. Now it's a verse or two from, from this. And a lot of times those are different translations. Right. And, and it, it suits the theme. Correct. But it doesn't necessarily hold together as to what those texts are actually trying to say or bring us to. I want you to imagine what life must have been like for this man, for a paralytic at this time. It meant that his whole world was a mad about four feet wide by about six feet long. It's all he knew. Uh, someone else had to feed him, carry him, 
clothe him, move him to uh, keep him from getting covered with bed sores, clean him when he soiled himself. There was nothing that could be done medically for him. No surgeries, no rehab programs, no treatment centers, no hope. There was no way for him to contribute to society. Anyone in this man's condition would have to go through life as a beggar. He's got no money, no job, no influence, no future. What's he got going for him? Well, one thing. He had friends. He has amazing friends. So what's going to come out of this guy's mouth is clearly going to be off the mark, as you say. But I, I do want to point out he's using, I think, another very good preaching technique, which is what I like to call your theological imagination. He is assuming a lot about this man's life based on a very little bit of text. I think you're free to disagree with him on this, but the picture that he's painting of this man is probably a very realistic one, at least in this circumstance. Now, you always have to be careful when people are using their theological imagination because sometimes they're going to use it to take you to weird places. But as of right now, this is, I think I would preach and, and share a similar idea about this man and his life. Again, none of this is in Scripture explicitly, but this man in a mat who needs to be carried to Jesus, he's clearly not doing well. Does he need to be fed by his friend? Maybe, maybe not. But you see what he's, you see he's doing. He's helping us to appreciate and develop empathy with his suffering. And that's actually, I think, a commendable preaching thing to do. To not just be like, the text doesn't say it, so I'm not going to make some, some educated assumptions about this man's life. I think that's, a, that's actually a useful preaching tool. You know, Pastor Oakry, every time that we have you on the Pluck Chicken, you're always so kind at the very beginning. Well, he hasn't upset me yet. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what happens when uh, when you stir a cow patty? It's like it doesn't really smell until you break that outer shell. Sure. And then you just... Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll get upset when it's time to be upset. But I think that sermon yeah. critiques, you should be as generous as you can and... I don't, I don't think I'm going to be able to be very, be very generous about the content. You've made your point. It turns out this guy is in one of the killer small groups of all time. Well, that didn't take very long for you to, to, make, a, to make a face there. I mean, this is about having a good small group, right? I mean, it's not wrong. You have, I'm sure that you have friends in your small group, but I have friends that aren't, aren't in a small group either. It's, it's just a weird place to, to locate friendship. But you have to remember that these churches, as I said earlier, they're not really saying anything. But what they are saying is you need to be involved in a small group. You need to be involved in a serving group at church, like with the children or out in the parking lot. This is during COVID here, so we don't have in-person meetings, but a lot of the emphasis is upon Y'all need to get back in church, and you need to be in a small group, and you need to be in a serving group so that we can get ready for the big tidal wave of people who are going to come back once everybody's vaccined. I guess it's a lot like uh, Lutherans are sometimes accused of saying, if, if I see water, I see baptism. I guess uh, the evangelical, if he sees a group of people, he sees a small group. The whole story takes place because of his friends. Without his friends, he never makes it to Jesus. Without his friends, he never gets healed. Without his friends, he never hears the word of forgiveness. How do you get these friends? I don't know. I doubt it was easy for him, especially because back in those times, most people looked down on those with physical handicaps. But there's this 
little band of men who refused to let his physical condition or social stigma keep them from being friends. These guys become devoted to each other. One thing this guy had to do to, to be friends with this group was let them carry him. That's hard. It's hard to be dependent on other people. But listen, part of real friendship is allowing our friends to carry us. Think about the guy in this story. He, he must have wrestled with the fact that like, he was totally dependent on his friends. They, they saw him in his neediness every day. It, it's a very uh, vulnerable thing to have someone carry your mat. And when someone is carrying your mat, you might get hurt if they drop you. So I'm curious... Who do you let carry your mat? And when you have a real friend, you let them carry you. You allow them to see your weakness and your strengths. You ask them for prayer. You let them into your brokenness. You tell them how you truly feel. Some of you have never really done that. And you wonder why you're lonely. It's because you've never really chosen to have friends. Companions, maybe. Co-workers, sure. Acquaintances, probably. But not friends. To have real friends. So we are well into this sermon. And at the very start, he says, we want to look at Jesus and who he was and what he did. And instead of pointing to Jesus as the driver of this story, he's actually pointing to the friends as the driver of the story. This story wouldn't happen without the friends. I'm sorry. This story wouldn't have happened without Jesus. And... You see what happens when we shift our focus. Does he have a lot of good things to say about friendship? Of course. Do we need to be more open to friendship? Sure. But this isn't information that you can't get off of any self-help book. But is it sin for me not to have friends? Well, he's he's not even saying it's sin, I know, right? But... I mean, he's just saying it's it's not it's not the best. And and but this is the point, right? I don't know that he's going to talk about sin. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But at this point, I feel like he's very much in kind of the, we're not talking about sin. We're just talking about improving your life. That's, of either A, you being a better friend. Yeah. Or, so, or opening, so that you can have a better friend. Yeah, but both, both and, right? You need to have friends and you need to be vulnerable with your friends. All of that is true. I 100% I agree. So Pastor Oakry, I mean, who carries your mat? I mean, which is, I, I have friends, but it is interesting that he's putting so much focus on friends and not on wife. I mean, my wife is the person who I share the most with. Is she my friend? Yes. But our bond is deeper than that, too. And you notice he's kind of left that on the shelf. And I get that, right? I mean, he's probably he's, he's probably thought this. He's like, oh, we're not going to talk about those relationships because that's going to alienate my single people. It's going to divide my attention. I'm just going to focus on friendship. It's, it's a choice you have to make. So will you let another person carry your mat? Will you share your struggles, your temptations, your fears? Will you ask for help? If you want a deep friendship, you cannot always be the strong one. 
And in our world, man, I know that can be kind of scary. But God is calling you to let someone else carry your mat. So God is calling us to this, huh? Earlier, when I was praising him for his theological imagination, you, you can't make a whole sermon on the speculative. <laughs> and at, at this point, I really feel like he is. Is The Bible literally tell, doesn't tell us that he was sick his entire life. No. He could have been, it could have been a short-term illness. And his friends were like, you know, just buds. They hung out, but they were like, oh, our friend is suffering, right? It, he is making a lot of assumptions here and driving us to draw conclusions based on those assumptions. And that's when you have to be careful with your theological imagination. You know, we were praising him for reading the text, but at this point, he's he's not dealing with the text. He's dealing with the white space in between the text. And you have to be very careful with that, too. Because if the text isn't going to say what you want it to say, but it kind of hints at it, and then you run with that little bubble that you create... Well, of course, that's going to be more fulfilling for you because you get to say what you want to say instead of what the text wants you to say. So when the apostle tells one of his protégés to preach the word, is that what Vince here is doing? Preaching the word? Uh, so far, no. I mean, he has literally said nothing about the text. He said things that he has kind of gathered that are reasonable speculations based on the text. But to build a sermon on that, is it's hogwash because it's not it's not built on scripture yeah god is calling you to make friends that is that is clearly not what this text is saying 100 percent. and again jesus never says isn't it good to have friends like this <laughs> right that's not the stamp of approval that he puts on this and we'll, and we'll talk about the point of this text uh, at another point i mean i want it, i want him to be able to speak and kind of i guess hang himself with his own words but it's, uh, you know, and, and what's crazy to me is that, of course, there's loneliness out there. There's all those things, and that's a, that's a consequence of sin. But to deal with it in this very shallow way and to deal with it without Christ, God's calling you. Well, what does the cross have to do with any of that? I mean, maybe we'll get to it. Maybe we don't. My, my guess is we won't. <laughs> that's what this guy did. He developed deep friendships with a group of guys because he was willing to let them carry his mat. And then one day something happens. Jesus comes to their town and these four guys, the, the friends, they hear about that. And Jesus was like the talk of the towns back then. So naturally these guys want to see him. They, they want to hear him teach. But then one of them says, wait, wait, we we can't just go ourselves. We've got to get our friend there because this could really encourage him. And who knows, maybe the things that they're saying about Jesus are true. Maybe he really can heal. We've got to get our friend there. I, would, I, I never got from this text that they were wanting to bring their friend there to hear Jesus speak. They, they were bringing him to Jesus for him to be healed. They weren't bringing him for some encouragement? No. <laughs> But we do this, and, and, and this happens in Lutheran preaching too. And I understand why we do it, because when I'm preaching to a group of people, I'm not generally preaching to a group of paralytics. <laughs> and I struggle to say, like, how is me talking about this, this paralyzed man, how are they going to relate to that? And so what do we do? We turn his physical malady into a spiritual malady. And really, that's what this guy has done. He said, just as this man was paralyzed... <laughs> You're paralyzed about making friends. I mean, how many times have you heard a sermon like that? 
just as this man was physically sick, you're spiritually sick. And Jesus heals that too. I get it because that is clearly a universal application of this. But have the guts to say to a group of people and understand that maybe not all of them are sick, but we all do get sick and we're all capable of thinking about that. And how powerful is it to talk to a person who is literally paralyzed <laughs> I just had a member called Home to Glory who is who had been in a wheelchair bound uh, for just a huge portion of her life to say, you know, God brings healing in these ways. And I think that's that's critical. And that's something one of my, uh, Dr. Fakincher, uh, who taught me preaching uh, homiletics and at seminary, he stressed that. He said, yeah, yeah, you're, nine times out of 10, you're going to move from physical to spiritual because spiritual is easy. Have the guts to to keep it physical. This is a physical healing. Let's talk about how God physically heals us. Well, I mean, granted, if you were just reading Mark and you only had Mark chapter 1 behind you and you come to the first couple of verses of chapter 2, you could maybe make an easier jump from the physical to the spiritual. However, if you look at Matthew and look at Luke and look at John— it was the standard operating procedure for people to bring the demoniac, the sick, the lunatic, the cripple, the blind, to Jesus for him to heal them. Right. And even in Mark, he's healed Peter's mother-in-law, and he spent the entire rest of that evening into the morning healing crowds of all of those ailments. And so Mark establishes it, too, just in that briefer mark way now that's gonna make it a lot harder for them right logistically to get to jesus but they're not thinking about themselves they're thinking about their friend friends do that and so they tell their friend that they're gonna go see jesus they'll pick him up at nine o'clock and he doesn't have much choice because when they pick him up they really pick him up Sorry. And so they get to the home where Jesus is, and and he's inside teaching, and it's just packed, standing room only. But we're told that not only is there no room like inside the house, there's not even room outside the door. People are crowding around the home, hoping to just hear a little of what's going on inside. Now, imagine the frustration of these four guys. Jesus is so close now. He's right there, but they just can't get through to him. They had been so excited. They had promised their friend he was going to get to see Jesus, and now they are shut out. So they're just standing in the yard outside the crowd when one of them, like like someone who's involved in management, I bet, says... Guys, we've got to figure out how we can get our friend into Jesus. So let's brainstorm. And remember, when you're brainstorming, guys, there's no such thing as a bad idea. So one of them, uh, probably the youngest guy in the group, he's, he's tattooed, he's pierced, he skateboards. He's kind of an out-of-the-box thinker. He says... Wow, he's really using that sanctified imagination of his, isn't he? I mean, this is something you like, Pastor Oakred. He's really going to town with it. I knew you would make me regret this. (laughs) So, yeah. So, again, he's trying to draw it into the context, right? And 
I want I want everyone here to appreciate that we are literally have dealt with all of like what, two or three verses, and this is not the meat of what is being done here. Well, you're right. But what I would add, isn't it interesting how he has an American mindset as he goes into the text? I mean, yeah. you think about, okay, so now this guy is an administrator who's got tattoos, and he's a young guy, and they have a, they're standing in the yard as if people in the Middle East, you know, had these freshly manicured lawns out front. It's like he's got American glasses on that he's looking at the text. And one of the things that you and I have to do, and really any preacher worth their salt, is you have to take it into the context of when it was written, to whom it was written. You're thinking about context, context, context. And when I talk about theological imagination, that's actually what I mean, is not helping people to see the people in the Bible as moderns, but you as a modern being drawn into the mindset of the actual biblical people. Sure. And I'll give an example of this. I mean, it doesn't take much to use some imagination regarding Joseph and Mary being outside of the inn. Like that, even that can be pushed way too far. Right. And I'll give you an example. I always think about this. And you see this in like plays and Hallmark movies and things like this. You know, they come to the inn and there is, you know, there's this man behind a little, uh, a little cubby window that's got bars on it. And he's wearing one of these uh, wife beater shirts with a cigar and he's got hair on his shoulders. And, you know, he's saying there's no vacancy and he slams the little door and Joseph and Mary walk away dejected and lonely as everybody kind of looks down on them. And they, they barely find this little cave and Joseph does what he can to kind of, you know, clean it up. This is, this is ridiculous yeah. in a society that holds hospitality as like the key virtue. There clearly was no room for them in the end, but that didn't mean that they were lonely and dejected. This is Joseph's hometown for crying out loud. There, there right. were people who were surrounding them to take care of them in their need. Right. But our idea of an inn is a hotel. Correct. And so we've taken them and put them into a modern context. And that's exactly right. And it's much better and much more fruitful for your people to say, now imagine what it was like for people who valued hospitality for these situ- for this situation to happen. And that's when you can talk about things that the Bible doesn't talk about, but were there. Instead of talking about things that weren't there, like the tatted up guy. <laughs> I mean, there was no tatted up guy there. And these guys weren't lunkheads. And this wasn't actually a stupid idea. These houses were built in a way where their roofs were easily repairable and they would tear holes in their roofs at times because sometimes you couldn't get things through the, your narrow door and so you had to tear a hole and just hoist it in, you know? How, how else? I mean, talking about being modern, like how else are you going to get your couch in, right? You know, or whatever. Or the but, piano. Right. <laughs> and so these things are not, this was not like a, a, a brainstorm session. This was just them like, well, we can go through the roof. And, and the Bible clearly presents it that way dudes like what if like what if we like got up on the roof and we like made a hole and we like lowered him down to jesus whoa so he was stoned (laughs) 
That's really putting a modern twist on it. Well, isn't it? But wait, he's trying to act like this is some mind-blowing idea to come up with. And again, it's not. No, what he's going to say is, remember at the very beginning how we're going to brainstorm, but all ideas are on the table. And this is a real dumb one. This is a dumb one. But it's not. This is a perfectly normal idea in that cultural context. Okay, guys, any other ideas? But there aren't any. The, the hole in the roof idea is the only thing they could come up with. And so they realize it's, it's kind of an unorthodox way to enter a room, but they're desperate to get to Jesus. And they've decided that no obstacle will stop them from getting to Jesus because they love their friend that much. So, so they, they go with the whole hole in the roof idea. So, so these guys get to work. They, they get their buddy up on the roof, which couldn't have been easy. Now put yourself inside the house for a minute. Jesus is teaching. All of a sudden, some dust kind of falls from the ceiling. And then all of a sudden, like a piece of something falls down. And, and so you look up and you realize there's a crack in the ceiling and then you look again and you realize that there are fingers coming through that crack. And pretty soon the crack becomes a hole and it's getting larger and larger. And there's now eight hands digging at it. And so, so the friends up there, they make the hole and they begin to lower their friend down on his mat. And they have to be wondering, how is Jesus going to respond I mean, they've heard stories, but they've never met him. They don't know much about him. Some teachers get annoyed when they're interrupted, that they may be worried about uh, how he'll, he'll respond. This is interesting. Now, again, he's, he's using this, this speculation, imagination thing. But what does the text say at the very beginning? Jesus comes to his home. Right. People are very familiar with who he is, how he would respond. They're not wondering how Jesus is going to respond. They know exactly how Jesus is going to respond to this. Yeah, this is a thing I think that we get instilled in us in modern Christianity that is a very kind of unhealthy picture, is that somehow it was just... Jesus and the 12 disciples as just this roving band of strangers just kind of rolling through the countryside. No, they were known. And and what Jesus was doing was building up a reputation. But these people clearly came to him expecting something from Jesus, not going, I wonder what he's going to do. Like They had an expectation that was built on, even this early in his ministry, what he had shown himself to be and to do. Well, then on top of that, as we've talked about before on our study of John, Jesus is a recognized rabbi. Right. You think about here uh, something that happened uh, recently that I saw in the news. It made a big deal nationwide out of Israel uh, because there were some rabbis. I mean, these guys are like 99, and the other one was 98 years of age. Thousands upon thousands of disciples came out, and, you know, the the point of the story was is how they uh, threw off COVID restrictions, and many of them were not wearing masks. And so there was this outpouring of appreciation and love for these rabbis. My point is, 
Here's Jesus, who's a recognized rabbi. Of course the house is full. And of course these guys are going to go through the roof. But they're not wondering to themselves, how is Jesus going to react to this? No, not even a little bit. And again, to make Jesus this almost aloof figure in the story is going against what Mark himself is trying to say. Jesus is so easy to understand if you let him be understandable. The problem he keeps running into is to people who who won't let him be who he says he is. He's not being mysterious and aloof. He, he, he's not he's not like just putting himself out there 100% either. That's clearly thematic in Mark. But it's not like he's hiding who he is, which is the larger point here, right? What man says, I forgive you your sins, right? I mean, that's the thing that that's the thing that he should be preaching on. Maybe we do. <laughs> well, let's see. But that doesn't stop them. Their only real concern is we have got to get our friend to Jesus. In verse 5 in the story, they're lowering their buddy down. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith. The faith he notices is not of the man, but of his friends, their faith. And that right there makes my point that I was saying earlier. These men, they had faith in Jesus. How did, how did they get that faith? They have heard him teach. Hearing comes from the word of God and the word of God through Christ. The text is telling you very clearly that these men are believers. Right. And I think sometimes when we hear that with our modern ear, because we talk, we talk about faith culturally all the time, but we've turned faith into kind of this amorphous blob, blobby thing that doesn't mean anything. You could read that, and, and, and I think he's kind of giving this gloss to, to what's happening here, is that the faith that Jesus is seeing is their faithfulness to their friend. Right, We're committed to him through and through. We're going to get him to you no matter what. That's not the faith that Jesus is talking about. What? The faith that he's talking about is there, because where are they bringing their friend? It, they, if, if what this guy is saying is true, they've had that faithfulness with him for years. That's not the point. The point is that they knew where to take him. <laughs> this is a critical piece for us to understand as Christians. And so I, 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 I want this to be something that the listeners clue in on is we have to kind of recorrect our brains understanding of what faith is to a scriptural understanding of faith, which is you always have faith in something or someone. <laughs> faith always has an object. And that's it's kind of a, a the Lutheran way we talk about it. When you say you just got to believe or you just got to have faith, the next question you should ask is in what or who? <laughs> and here the faith is clearly the object of the faith of the men is Jesus. In Mark, now in the sermon, I don't. That is not clear at all, and you can see how this sermon just starts to collapse like a like a bad flan, right? In on itself, it doesn't have any structure to it because it doesn't understand that what this faith is, and that faith is at the heart of kind of the human experience with Jesus. I've heard what he has to say, I've seen what he can do, and I and I want that for myself. That's why we call ourselves Christians, because we that's the exact same experience we've had. And here's what's awesome, and this is one of the things I love about this text, which is actually very fruitful for us today. 
I can't help but think of this man as a baby being brought to the baptismal font. God looks at the faithfulness of those parents and he says, because of their faith in me, right? Not just their faithfulness, but their faith in me, I forgive you all your sins. And this is a, this is a cool text to point to for that. Because it does show, right? Because we, we always want to make our Christian life so individualized. This man is not individualized at all. He is, he is receiving something on account of, of, of his friends. And we've all received something in that way too. When we've been brought to the baptismal font. Or even if, if you came to faith as an adult, right? What did somebody do? Somebody, somebody faithfully trusting in Jesus opened up God's word to you and helped you to see the gifts of, of a savior. And you said, I want that too. But especially with <sighs> infant baptism, which is what uh, you started out with. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a beautiful uh, switch there from the paralyzed man in the scriptures who's brought by his friends to the child that's brought to the baptismal font by his faithful mom and dad. And it is interesting to note that you as the pastor... You're asking questions of this baby who cannot answer. Right. But mom and dad and sponsor or whoever who's there with with the child, they answer for the child. And then as the child grows and learns, goes through catechesis, he's able to answer these things himself or herself. Right. It's an absolutely beautiful thing. Yeah, and th- and that's an important point because sometimes I think we see confirmation as being very intimately connected to the Lord's Supper. Of course, that's the outcome of it, but it is more intimately connected to our baptism because we're we're actually putting in your mouth the the things that have already been said uh, by you and for you. Uh, it's just been said by the mouths of others. Well, and speaking of that, this is probably one of my favorite things to do at a funeral. Think about a faithful Christian who is baptized like we're talking about at an early age, mom and dad say the Lord's Prayer for this little one. They say the Apostles' Creed for this little one. Then, as you're pointing out, they go to Sunday school. They go to uh, junior Lutherans, if they have that. They go to formal catechesis, and they get confirmed. And then they continue to grow in grace, and then they die. Years and years later, they die. And now, as the body lies in the coffin before it's put into the ground, what does everybody say? The Lord's Prayer at the committal, the Apostles' Creed. Just like parents said it for the little baby when they were baptized, yeah. now we, as family, you know, the survivors, mm-hmm. we say it for the faithful departed. Yeah. It's quite beautiful that entire yeah that entire th- uh, circle there. I've never I've I've never made that connection, but that's a fruitful one. And isn't it wonderful that God is big enough and good enough to to let people speak for us and 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 let their faithfulness stand for us when when our when we can't do it ourselves. Right. I told you that part of real friendship is allowing our friends to carry us, but another part is carrying them. There are times in life when we need friends to carry our mat, and there are times when we have to carry the mats of our friends. Do you have any idea what the faith of a person can do for their friends? So, 
When was the last time you carried the mat of a friend? When was the last time you dug through a roof for a friend? When was the last time you performed an extraordinary act of service for a friend? Well, before he goes on, Pastor Oakley, I don't think I've ever done any of that, quite honestly. No, I don't know this for a fact, but he's not going to do this. This would be a perfect place to proclaim Christ. What? <laughs> and, and, and even like, what a friend we have in Jesus, right? Oh my goodness. There's a song. I know. Right. I mean, there's, we, 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 there is such a thematic connection to make here. Jesus is our one and true friend. And that could be a way to, to salvage this from just kind of self-help goggly, gobbledygook. Okay. So, maybe maybe so, he will. Well, let's hope so. Okay. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> When's the last time you really listened when a friend needed you, even though you were busy? When's the last time you spoke truth to a friend so they could grow, even though it took courage on your part, even though it was hard to say? When's the last time you thought up and and planned out something really cool for a friend? Maybe a trip you could do together. Real friendship means allowing our friends to carry us, and it means carrying our friends. So will you carry them out of your friend? Will you dig through the roof? That's what these guys did. They, they dug through the roof and, and they lowered their friend down. And there's no record of them saying anything. It's not what he hears that Jesus responds to. The Bible says he saw their faith. What, what did he see? Well, he saw a big hole in the ceiling with four faces in it. Sweaty, dusty, hopeful faces turning something, hoping, trusting that somehow that Jesus had the the kind of heart that might respond. I mean, yeah, let's hope. (laughs) And I get it. And I try to be sensitive of this in my preaching too, that sometimes our faith in Jesus and what he can do does feel very tenuous and we can approach him uncertainly. But one of the preaching tasks is to dispel that fear of, of course, you know, like, but can Jesus do this for me? And if, if it's forgiveness of sin, if it's, if it's life eternal, the, the answer is yes. And it's a certain yes. And of course this is, as I've matured as a pastor and I still have a lot of maturing to do, of course, but this is a real Lutheran distinctive that we don't come to Jesus being like, I mean, I guess I hope maybe, you know, if it's okay with you, Jesus, we're like, and in fact, we pray this way. We're talking about the Lord's prayer. What do you say to God in the Lord's Prayer? And you give him imperatives. You say, your name be holy, Lord. Your kingdom come, your will be done. You're bossing him around. And we can and we can boss God around when we boss him around according to his promises. You think about the Canaanite woman when she responds to Jesus. She bosses him around. Yeah. You know, he says, listen, the... Uh, I came to give bread to the uh, the house of Israel, and she bosses him around. She says, "Well, even the little dogs need uh, need to eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table." Then, and he loved it. Of course, he did, because God doesn't mind us telling him to do what he's already told us he's going to do. He's not like, "Oh, I, I promised it, but I don't really want to do it." You think he wouldn't send Jesus to Earth to suffer and die if he didn't really want to do it? Of course, he did, and so. I kind of liked what he was doing there for a moment because it seemed like he was pointing to Jesus as the object of faith. But then it was really just like Jesus seems like such an uncertain quantity. And 
scripture makes it 100% clear. And we're in the season of epiphany, which is about making this 100% clear. Jesus is here for our good. He is here to heal us and forgive us, restore us, give us life. All of the all of that different language we use. And it's not it's not like maybe, it's yes, he's doing it. Our hymnody is rich in this. I mean, the next time we sing a hymn about Jesus, look about how certain it is about who Jesus is. That's the the strength of our hymnody is to instill that certainty in us. There's there's no question in our mind that this is, of course, what God is doing. And and that's a real failing here is to create make Jesus seem uh, like a much un, much more uncertain quantity. Four guys thinking about their friend, not worried about the embarrassment or what will happen next or or, or what are people going to think or who who will pay attention, uh, you know, to what they're doing or who's going to pay for the repairs of the ceiling or or the interruption that they're causing for everyone. They're just thinking about their friend. Jesus saw their faith and he looks at this twisted, motionless body that's lying on the mat. And he sees not only a broken body, but as there is in every single one of us, a broken soul. And he speaks so tenderly. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. All right, so we've finally gotten here really to the heart of what this narrative is about. It's not about carrying mats. It's not about having somebody carry your mat. It's not about being a good friend. It is about what he just said right there. We've gone from the the husk, so to speak, and we have gotten to the meat of this nut here. Absolutely, we have. and of So course, I'm pretty excited to see what's going to take place, aren't you? Well, yes, and, and hopefully he brings out how the free give, giving of forgiveness is a controversial thing for some people. Well, but the issue is our biggest need is the forgiveness of our sins. Right. It's not lack of friends, and it's not even being paralyzed. Right. Yeah, and and of course that's the point that Jesus finally makes. Just so you can know that I can do the most important thing, I'm going to do something much smaller, which is the point of all the miracles. They're not the point; they're the signs that point to the point. Well, so let's listen to this pastor, Pastor Vince, really just lay it on us here regarding our need for the forgiveness of sins. The- this man has been mocked and shunned and judged by people who, who assumed that his damaged body was an indication that he was spiritually inferior to them, that, that he was judged by God. But now he's told by Jesus, you are a son of God and you are clean. You're forgiven. You are right with God. Can, can you imagine how that sounded to him? And this is another part of friendship. It's the most important part. See, in real friendship, sometimes we have to let our friends carry us, and sometimes we carry our friends. And the most important place we can carry our friends is to Jesus. When someone is your friend, your greatest desire for them, deeper even than the well-being of their physical health, is that your friend is right with God. If someone is really my friend, 
their deepest concern is the well-being of my soul. Do you have friends like that? Are you a friend like that? And your friends need Jesus. They, they, they need to have more faith in Jesus. Be closer to Jesus. And, and I know what we think. We, we think, well, I, I don't, I don't want to pressure anyone. And, and people don't like to talk about religion. But we're not talking about pressuring anyone. And we're not pushing religion. We're sharing Jesus. We got off the uh, subject of the forgiveness of sins pretty quickly, Pastor O'Gree. Even though we move from there to a noble thing about witnessing and sharing Christ with others, but what are you going to share with them about Jesus? I can see how you could turn this into an evangelism text, but it's kind of a lousy one because, as he pointed out earlier, this guy doesn't have any say in the matter, and his friends are, are bringing him there. You know, They're bringing him there faithfully, but clearly they're bringing him there for his physical malady. Or at least that's always the assumption I've had. Again, the scripture never makes that 100% clear either. And so there's a lot of particularities in this text that don't make it a great evangelism text. And then add on to that the more important point that clearly that is not the, the key point here. The key point is Jesus can forgive sins. And we haven't talked about sins. And being a good friend... One of the hard things you have to do sometimes is say to people, you're a sinner, right? Uh, but there's forgiveness. And that's not the language that seemingly we want to truck in here. And so he's taken forgiveness and he's kind of judo flipped it into a, an acceptance, right? You're a child of God. That is an important biblical picture of our identity as Christians, 100%. Which comes by uh, means of baptism, Right, it's a and it's a baptismal identity, absolutely. That's not what Jesus says here, though, even though he puts it in his mouth. He doesn't say, because of your friend's faith, you are a child of God. He says, because of your friend's faith, your sin is forgiven, which is kind of an amazing thing to say about a guy who hasn't had any specific sin done. But I think maybe the point is, there's a cultural assumption around this man that his, his, paral his paralysis is because of some great sin that he's done. You encounter that in other texts, and it's probably fair to make that assumption that culturally people look at him and they reject him because he must have done something really bad to be experiencing something this awful. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And really, culturally, that's a big deal. This guy has sin attached to him, and not in a specific way. No one's like, oh, I know exactly what he did wrong. They're like, he must have done something wrong. And he's saying, I'm taking that out of the picture. It just seems like he can't really wrestle with that sin forgiveness aspect. One of the points I wanted to make talking about sin is uh, hamartion, at least the way I've been taught it, is the uh, hamartion is the Greek word for, for sin. And that literally means missing the mark. <laughs> we have one target we're given, right? One bullseye. And you can hit that bullseye nine times out of ten, but that tenth one is hamartion, it's sin, and it's not perfect, right? That's oftentimes when we talk about perfection. You can see, like, missing the mark and preaching God's word, too. And I, I just like, thought it was an interesting uh, connection there. It is, but it's called missing the point. But we're with you. You're exactly right. Very good. And we can figure out a way to do that that is not obnoxious and does not feel judgmental. And we will. 
if we're a real friend. Will you? Will you lovingly share your faith? Will you graciously invite them to come and experience what you're experiencing? Because that's what a real friend would do. Because part of friendship and the most loving thing you can do is carry someone to Jesus. Because he is the only one who can make them right with God so they can spend all eternity with him in heaven and so that he can bring them healing here in this life. And, and that's what Jesus did for this man. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. To which I would say, tell me more about that. I'm not paralyzed, but I am indeed in need of my sins being forgiven. And I've got plenty of friends. <laughs> right. I do, me too. <laughs> but, I'm more friends I know what to do with. But, but that's not... That's not my that's not my big problem. Exactly. But now it and you know, and then this becomes a subtle guilt thing. And it's true. I mean, we if you love a person, you're gonna want them to know the eternal love of Christ, right? And that's true. But if we're not wrestling with the direct issue in the text, we're not really wrestling with the text. Right. We're just using the text as kind of dressing for what we want to talk about. And that can happen. And that's why we need to be careful. Even if the person reads the text beforehand, are they actually wrestling with the text and, and getting to the point of it? Seeing how this guy won't do it, yeah. let's go ahead and do it now. Okay. I mean, the issue is with my sin, the Lord Jesus has given the keys to the church. And so much so that when I confess that I am a sinner... The pastor who has the keys absolves me mm-hmm. of my sin in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all of your sins. I mean, that miracle doesn't just take place at church, as you know. Sure. When I confess my sin of being terse with my wife and I say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And she says, Christ forgives you. I forgive you. Mm -hmm. She has absolved me as well. I just got through going to church and absolving everyone through Christ Jesus. I come home. I confess my sin to her. She absolves me through Christ Jesus. I think, you know, we think about forgiveness as this thing that's just floating out there. And, And you're right. It doesn't exist exclusively in church. I would say this. The forgiveness that you receive from Christ is found in church because that's where the word of forgiveness is and that's where the means of grace are. Well, this goes back to certainty you were talking about earlier. Right. Like with the evangelical, he just says, Lord, will you forgive me of my sin or please forgive me? Like there is no absolution for confession that is made in the heart in the sense that there is no certainty in that I walk away from that prayer knowing that I am forgiven. Whereas in the liturgy, you confess and you hear it. Yeah. How do I know that I'm forgiven? I just heard it. Right. It's not a feeling because Satan will eat your lunch when it comes to feelings. Yes, we we bring our life of forgiveness out into the world, out into our vocations, out into our relationships. Of course we do. 
but we can't maintain that that life of forgiveness apart from the forgiveness we continue to receive from Christ. And so it starts at church with baptism. It brings us back to church throughout our lives and 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 we finally rest in that, right? And the forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ. And so our our lives are constantly bringing us back into the presence of Christ in church where he comes to us gently as a as the bridegroom to his bride and 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 gives us again what we need uh the forgiveness of sins and, and so, consolation so is this pastor Vince here is he is he helping his people when you say that we can bring people to Jesus without being offensive he's completely ignored the fact that Jesus forgiving sins here is offensive to people and i think that that's how can you talk about this text without wrestling with that truth? But that has to be put on the side. Now, we can figure out a way. It's not my job to be offensive. In fact, it's, it's not my job is to be inoffensive. I'm not supposed to be offensive, but the message of the cross is offensive itself. And so no matter how winsomely I tell people, you're a sinner and you're going to hell, they're going to hear that and they're going to be like, how dare you, <laughs> Right. I'm fine because we don't want to hear that, right? Just like my dad doesn't want to hear that he's got a bad health diagnosis, right? Still have to hear it. Say it winsomely, but it's still hard. When somebody comes up to you and says, you have cancer, right? I don't care how big a smile you have on your face, that's not going to make their day. But it's also good to hear right on the tail of it, but there's a cure. <laughs> and then something else happens. There's this uh, group of people in the room, the teachers of the law, the religious power brokers. And you'll notice that they had no friends to bring to Jesus. They're, they're supposed to be the spiritual ones, but apparently there's no one in their life who's hurting or confused or lost or wandering or, or needed Jesus in any way. That is what happens when you have a theme looking for a text instead of a text that gives you a theme. And it starts, to, it starts to help you see how unimportant the friendship is in the first context. Who's to say that these people weren't friendless? Who's to say that they weren't all just great friends there? And they exactly. Wanted, and they wanted, to, they wanted to hear and see what Jesus was about. I don't even think it particularly describes malice to why they're there. Well, he, he's jabbing yeah. at guys like you and guys I like know me. It. Like the religious folk, like they don't, they don't care about people and they don't care about bringing people to Jesus and they don't care about being a good friend. But this religious folk is deeply concerned with making sure that people are forgiven and have their guilt removed. And what's he doing? He's just kind of working you into a, a guilt trip about, oh, you've got a friend that doesn't believe in Jesus? Well, if you're really their friend... I'm just, it's, it's, such a, it's such a poisonous thing to do to folks. It gets worse. Okay. Who do you think was great in God's eyes in that moment? I know the answer. What is it? Jesus. What? <laughs> but I bet he's not going to say Jesus. No, he's no, not. No, it was, but. It's the friends. We all, need, we all need Jesus. But see, we're always tempted to kind of deflect away from it. And, and this, is, this is an evangelical thing I've seen. You, your friend needs Jesus, but you don't. He doesn't believe in Jesus, so you need to be bring him to Jesus. But now that you believe in Jesus, you need to be showing Jesus that what you're a good employee or whatever, and 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 receive honor from him. No, we keep needing to receive Jesus. That's the point. Well, and this is a great point that you bring up. 
for the evangelical, for the American evangelical, the gospel only gets you saved. But you don't need it. You don't need it after you make a decision for Jesus. Right. I call that rearview mirror. Right. Jesus or gospel, right? It, I, I, I had it, but now I'm busy doing the work of the kingdom as if Jesus didn't say it's finished from the cross. These experts in the Bible who knew so much or four etiquette-challenged roof crashers who would do anything for their friend. See, the, the greatest sign of spiritual maturity is not a head crammed full of knowledge, but a heart that desperately loves people and desperately loves Jesus and desperately wants to bring them together. Number one, he didn't answer his own question, but he's just kind of laying it out there. Right. Who's more important in God's eyes? The know? gross person over there or this really wonderful person? <laughs> right. Well, I'll let you decide. Right. <laughs> but here's the problem. It comes down to a head full of Bible knowledge or a heart full of compassion towards others. Why do we have to pit these uh, against each other? Well, and it's interesting to me that he's assuming that these people that are bringing this man weren't Pharisees themselves. I mean, they could be. Who knows? Great point. That They're... reminds me of the uh, the uh, thief on the cross. Everybody loves to say, well, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. Well, how do you know? Right. But I think this is a good point that we always do. Of course, we like to turn the Pharisees into villains. Sure. They always wear black robes with a really oily uh, handlebar mustache. Right. That they're always rubbing. But... In the biblical story, recognize they're not villains. Jesus loves them, and he has a lot in common with them. Pharisees are the ones you want your daughter to marry. Right. They get stuff wrong, but Jesus isn't like, look at those villains over there. He says, beware of them. I mean, they bring they bring untruth into the world. I get that. But he's also working with them. And, he, and of course, he doesn't treat them as a blanket category uh, like this preacher is. But this is one of the things that is so important for us to understand. Yes, the Pharisees were wrong. Don't kid yourself into thinking that if I'm not like the Pharisees, I'm right. Because there's a ditch on both sides of the road. And we have seen it a thousand times. Compassionate people wanting to do compassionate things and loving things and not care one lick about what the Bible says. Where's the sense in that? What does the Bible tell us? It says, preach the truth in love. Yeah, you can't be loveless like the Pharisees were, but you can't just say, oh, it's all just heart. And me, you need both. Let me give you an example. Ordaining comfort dogs. Right. What heartless SOB what would... Fer if you just call him a Pharisee. Okay, right. what Pharisee would not want a dog ordained to do ministry? Well, because the ordained ministry is not the ministry of the comfort of petting an animal. It is the comfort of delivering Christ and him crucified for the forgiveness of sins. You're such a Pharisee. Well, I know, right? And that is to say, I, I, I've seen the good of comfort dogs. But why do we have to, why do, we have to do something silly to make their, the comfort they bring? How does ordaining them make anything that a comfort dog does better? Well, the religious leaders are upset that Jesus like told the, the man that his sins are forgiven because... They don't understand who Jesus is, and they don't understand God's heart, and they don't understand real friendship. Oh, they don't. Of course they understand friendship. They have friends. These are prominent and important people. The, the bigger point is the first two points he made. They don't understand 
forgiveness. They don't understand Jesus. Of course, that, that's the point. These people believe powerfully and intimately in the forgiveness of sins. Their lives are built around the forgiveness of sins. They just don't think that a mere man can proclaim it. Right. And nor can he. Right. Uh, it requires a sacrifice. It requires temple. It requires ritual. It requires the uh, uh, the mediation of uh, priests. I, I totally agree with you. Forgiveness of sins is a very, very, how would you say it, like a central element of their life. Of course. But God is the one who does it. Now, what is Jesus in this moment what is the connection that's being made? Jesus is God, which is why this is an epiphany text. This is why this gets like, oh, he's not just a man, but he's also God. And the other epiphany text is Jesus being baptized, where God says, this is my beloved son. The other one is transfiguration, where the exact same thing happens. Not only does Jesus begin to emanate this effulgence, this incredible light, but you've got God saying what he says, a turning water into wine, mm -hmm. right? Or the epiphany text is the wise men who come in, well, yeah. not just give gifts, but worship this baby because this baby is more than a baby, right? And that's, that's the whole point. And of course, another epiphany theme with the wise men is how Jesus is drawing the nations to him. And so uh, he's not just the God for the Israelites, although he is first and foremost that, especially at this point, but he is the God of the, the whole world. So this guy is missing the boat completely because all he wants to do is ride his one-trick pony, so to speak, about the friend. Right. Think about what a disappointing and, frankly, disturbing thing it is to do to use Jesus to divide ourselves, right? Because he's saying, he's saying, don't be, don't be a gross Pharisee. Be a nice friend. Guess what? We're all gross Pharisees. <laughs> and it's important. It's an important part of the preaching task is not to say don't be like them, is say we are them. We but are aren't you, aren't you so being so religious right now? Well, I mean, this guy's not religious. Right. So all we're getting Even is... Even though he's a pastor of a church. <laughs> well, right. I mean, that's its own kind of mystery. I'm, I'm sure that he wants these people to be religious enough to continue to put money in the collection plate or send it in electronically or whatever they're doing, which, you know, is this kind of fast one that, that this uh, we're spiritual, not religious, or we're, we're, we're about Jesus, not religion. Uh, ultimately, you pull a fast one because... Anything that uh, that looks to God in any way is going to be religious. Now, be, but beside the point is, here we have Jesus, and he is trying to gather in the nations. And here's this guy saying, but there's the good guys and the bad guys. No, we're all bad guys. And this is the love of God that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, well, I'm only going to die for the good guys that brought their friend, he died for the Pharisees too. And that's really important. I just preached on this last week. I, I kind of talked about three categories because it was about not being a stumbling block. I talked about new believers and, the, and it's easy to be a stumbling block to them. You kind of got to watch yourself around them, right? Even a mature believer, whatever that means or looks like, we all have some immaturity in us and we, 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 we stumble around each other too. If it was just up to us, 
all we do is whap into each other and, and upset each other. And then, and then you have people like the Pharisees who won't listen and uh, who are trying to manipulate things for their own ends. I get it. God still loves them. Jesus still loves them. I mean, if Jesus can say on the cross, Father, forgive them, who is he talking to? Well, he was talking to us. <laughs> but most immediately, he was talking to the people who were literally out to murder him. He says, Father, forgive them. And if you hear that and you believe that, when you get into a podium and you say, but there's some real nasty folks out there. And it's you a plexiglass podium, by the <laughs> way. Well, of course. That's not Christ-like at all. It, it isn't to say don't be like the gross people. It's to say we need to have sympathy for them. We need to reach out to them. We, we can't let them poison us with their lies. Of course not. But to sit there and say, be good, don't be, don't be bad. You're, you're, you're making dividing lines that Christ doesn't want us to make. He'll, he'll do that at the end. <laughs> he'll separate the sheep from the goats at the end. Until then, let's just be gathering the wheat into the barn. And to talk about bringing people to Jesus and then talk about the religious Bible smart people who are just kind of puffed up on themselves. Well, they need Jesus too. Knock it off. So Jesus says, just so you can see that I have the authority of God to forgive sins. Watch this. And he turns to the guy on the mat and says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And then there's silence as everyone watches. And the guy stands up, and he takes his mat, and he goes home. He would never spend another moment on that thing his body, his heart, his soul is healed. And the people in the room, man, they all throw a party. They are praising God and celebrating. But you just know the place where the party was the hottest, it was with these four guys and their friend, right? Like, can you imagine what they were doing? They're jumping up and down. They are screaming. I mean, these guys were raising the roof, which was good because of Never mind. And this whole story happened because somewhere along the line, this very unlikely group decided we're going to be friends. And I think at the end of this guy's life, when he's an old man and his friends are now like using canes and, and walkers, he was still hopping around because Jesus gave him a really good warranty and his legs hadn't been used all that long. Here's the problem with that. Even though he's using some serious, you know, uh, imagination that he's been doing this entire time, is he's going to die. Whether he's got a walker or a cane or right. a wheelchair, he's going to die. And yeah. th this is the issue. Sin and death. Not to mention the devil and the world. But at least in this context of this sermon... What are you going to do with your sins? And because he's gone there, what are you going to do about your death? Right. Because those are intricately tied. The reason that we die is because we're sinners. Exactly so. It's a hard lesson to learn. I think it's a, it's, it's a hard lesson for a pastor to learn, to be able to go into a hospital room, which just stinks of death, right? I mean, he's just dying in this place. And to go to that person and hold their hand and say... Jesus is healing you. Your mom understands because she's been she's been dying for a long time. You're just hours away from actual healing. <laughs> well, and, 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 and you're hours away from your prayer for healing to actually be answered. 
completely and fully and eternally, right? Right, right? And this man's healing, when it comes to the healing miracles in particular, but I think in the, the miracles overall, we major in the minors in as much as we focus in on the miracle instead of the forgiveness behind the miracle. What makes this man's temporary healing in this life matter is the fact that he's, no matter what happens to him in this life, he could have tripped down the street and, and been hit by a donkey cart. I mean, I don't know. The widow that left the, the temple, she could have just found some cold corner somewhere and died. In fact, that's maybe the most likely outcome since she put her last two pennies in the, in the offering box. Like Lazarus, he didn't receive a lick of healing in this life except from dogs. He was restored and lifted up and, and brought to the bosom of Abraham. If we just keep our eyes fixed on this life, we're missing the point. And this is the problem with the American Evangelical Church. The focus is always on Jesus coming to help you live the abundant life. Which is a very American way of understanding things, right? But not understanding that what Jesus is saying there is eternal life. Right. I I don't want the audience to be confused, the listeners to be confused, in as much as, yeah, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the eternal. But when we keep our eyes fixed on the eternal, it actually makes this life not maybe abundant— uh, I mean, we do have abundant life in Christ, but it's full of abundant joys and abundant sorrows, right? There is real meaning for our life in Christ as well. But when we keep our eyes fixed on eternity, it's put in its proper context. And that's how we deal with things like suffering and loss and cancer and and, and misery and death itself. So that as Lutherans, we can sing in the face of death. We well, can sing victory in the okay. face of death. All right, perfect. I'm so glad you said that because I was thinking of Simeon. Simeon, who is not concerned about having his best life now. I mean, no. he's like, I have just held the glory of Israel, the light of all of the Gentile nations. I can die. Right. I mean, he's not looking for life now. He is looking for a blessed death. Yeah. And, and we don't know when he died after he said that. Sure. But the thought is, is nothing in my life presently is going to be any better than beholding the Messiah. There's nothing in this life that can be better than that, which is fascinating that we sing the exact yeah, same say. thing after doing what? After receiving Christ. <laughs> right. right? We actually have held him more intimately than, than Simeon did. Right, right. And, and and that's the joy of communion is every time you get up from the communion meal, you say, Lord, I can die now. Correct. I, I Depart in peace. When I say to you, depart in peace, I'm not just saying have a great week. Right. I'm saying... Go die. Go die. And, and that's, you know, we were talking about what we say at, at, at funerals. And that's one of the points I always make. I always say, I the last time I visited them, or I, you know, maybe not always the last time because of, of health things, but at some point I said to them in their life, depart in peace. And guess what? They have. <laughs> Amen. And that's that's a wonderful truth to proclaim. <laughs> but still, I think he would say that outside of the forgiveness of his sins and his destiny with God, the greatest gift of his life was not his legs, but his friends. So he's undercutting himself here, right? So why are we not just talking about the greatest thing that he would say that he had? Let this man speak for himself. Are your friends important? Yeah, my friends are important. Which is what's most important? 
that my sins are forgiven. That's true. And that's, that's decent gospel, but he's, he's putting it in a corner. <laughs> he's saying, well, that was the most important thing, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about friends. Now, I think this is a trap that pastors fall into a lot because we preach every Sunday, right? Sometimes Saturdays, sometimes Wednesdays, whatever. And we think, I have told these people about the forgiveness of sins so many times. They know it. And so if I just, I say, forgiveness of sins is important. You all know that. I don't think the preaching tasks allows us to ever take that for granted. The forgiveness of sins is the most important thing this man should ever, this man has ever received. You can talk about friendship in that context. That's fine. But that should be the thing you that the, the people should leave ringing in their ears. Not, you got to have friends, but... I am forgiven in Jesus Christ. Well, they're not going to leave from this message with the slightest bit of understanding of their need for forgiveness. Right. And I, I think, you know, what I've said there about what, what do you leave ringing in people's ears? His theme is friendship. And he's brought that theme to bear. And so as far as he's concerned, he's done his job. But... As far as God's concerned, as a preacher of God's word, he is not. Because you can talk about friendship. You can talk about family. You can talk about the good things of this life. The Bible talks about those things. Of course it does. But those things don't mean a lick apart from Christ. Because those things can't endure apart from Christ. So to put put Christ in the back seat, as it were, and put friends right beside you and say... This is the most important thing today. Jesus, we love you, and you're along for the ride. And we appreciate that sin thing you did. Yeah, is to slowly erode what you're taking for granted. And trust me, Satan's going to have a heyday with it. Satan's going to say to every single person that's heard this, sure, be a great friend. You'll still go to hell. Right. He does not care about you being... And he's like, well, yeah, but we're bringing our friends to Jesus. Like, well... If this is bringing our friends to Jesus to hear more of this, are we really? And I get it. I, I, and I don't mean to overstate. Because I'm sure that then when this guy is dealing with people just coming into the faith, as is typically the case, kind of coming out of the evangelist world, it's all Jesus. It's all forgiveness. It's all grace. But then you get, just as we were talking about, you get, it, you get through the security door and it's like, okay, enough of that Jesus stuff. Now here's the stuff. And that erodes. Our task, and, and what the Lutheran church does, which is beautiful, is say, you never outgrow Jesus. You never outgrow your need for him. Every service, we're going to confess our sins and be forgiven. We're going to talk about our need for the Lord's mercy. We're going to hear God's word tell us that we're sinners, and that, but, but what Christ has done for that. And then the, the preacher is going to tell us as well. But then even more, we're going to receive that forgiveness on our lips. And I'll tell you what, when you get to the end of your life, it's not going to matter very much to you how big your house was or how much money you collected or how fast your car could drive. What will matter are the friends who laughed with you and cried with you and danced with you and moved you a little closer to Jesus. And if you don't have friends like that, you need to. When you get to the end of your life, most of the people that I know, when they get to the end of their life, their friends have been dead for years. Right. I mean, 
it's not, I don't know if you do this, and I don't know when I'm going to start doing it, but like, you know, I bet your mom does. I mean, they read through the obituaries every day, right? To see who has died. And generally speaking, they think to themselves, oh, I remember him. I remember her, right? These weren't close friends, but there were acquaintances from high school or whatever the case may be. The point that I'm trying to make is when you get to the end of your life, if God in his graciousness and kindness gives you a full, long life, not that he's ungracious if he doesn't, but the point that I'm trying to make is if you live a long life, most of the friends are dead. That's not what you're thinking about. And pastorally, I can tell you, when I most of the time when I go to folks, uh, some of them are, are holding on for the honor of turning 100 or whatever. Um, I've, I've run into that. But most of them, I, I talk to them and they said, I'm just ready to die. Sure, I'm ready um, to go home. And this they, is what they say. And they'll say that for years. They'll be like, I, I don't know why God's keeping me here. And, I, and, and that's part of my job, too, is to say, well, the, he's not just keeping you here for no reason. I mean, God doesn't work pointlessly. One of the burdens of living a long life is that... God systematically over time, it's always a cutting away. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. there's this cutting away. Generally it's you know, it's cutting away of a spouse. And mm-hmm. and usually even before the spouse goes, you know, there's health issues yourself. You know, mm-hmm. the uh hair gets thin, spots show up on the hands, eyes uh grow dim. I mean it it's this constant cutting away. And then as one really moves into sunset years, it's, I can't live at home anymore. Right. It's, uh, my kids won't let me drive anymore. They've taken right. the car keys. Or and, they're going to make me move away from everything that's familiar to me to be closer to their care, which right. is understandable, but also strips away. Absolutely. So there's this constant cutting away to where all that an individual has left is really their prayers. Hey, amen. And I, this is, I tell people this all the time. The, the, the problem of this world isn't that it's all bad. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us this world's all bad. The Bible, the Bible tells us the world is full of blessings and, and curses. The, the problem of this life is that the blessings we have flee us. And they, they, sometimes they flee us quite suddenly, but sometimes they just kind of go slowly over time. But you learn that you cannot hold on to the blessings of this life, no matter how hard you try. Even if they're friends. Right. And and the sad thing is the, the impression he gets is that when you're at the end of the life, you know, maybe your friends aren't there, but he's talking about you thinking about them. If the best thing you can have is a, is a fond memory of somebody, the world's got that in spades. In fact, that's all the world does, right? That's why we try to turn funerals into parties, right? I'm, we're going to remember what a, what, a great, what a great guy you were. How much more powerful is it to say, yeah, remember the person they were, but look forward to the person that they are now in Christ. They're still alive, and they're and they're, that's going to be eternal. Your friends will never be stripped away from you. Our lives in Christ are more than memories, right? And you think about Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration that we mentioned earlier. You've got Moses and Elijah. Were Moses and Elijah friends? <laughs> well, not on not on this <laughs> side of eternity. Or the point is, is what brought them all together is your point. Yeah. It was Christ. Yeah. Peter, James, John, Moses, Elijah. What brought them all together was Christ. It had nothing to do with friendship. Right. Uh, other than the 
sacrificial friendship of Christ, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. But that's not the friend he's pointing to. And it's it's stunning to me that you would miss that. Well, let's let him finish. I mean, I, I he's only got like three more minutes. All right. But he keeps saying this ridiculous stuff. Yeah. At our church, the place where those kinds of friendships are born are in verve groups. Uh, verve groups consist of five to 15 or so people who meet usually once a week uh, in living rooms, coffee shops, online. A lot of our groups right now online. And, and as a group, you laugh together and you encourage each other and you get to know Jesus better and you grow in your faith together. See what I'm saying? Something stupid. Why does it always devolve into selling some silly program at your church? And and I love it. The way we do that here, these people are fully formed human beings. I have friends, and I didn't need church to make those friends. Well, have you ever tried a verb? I don't even know the name of <laughs> Right, right. Verb, verge, who knows? <laughs> and, and of course, he can't just call it a small group anymore. It's got to have some fancy oh, yeah. energy name attached oh, yeah. to it. Well, that's I, the name of their church, Verve. So it's a Verve group. The point is, yeah, you, you've done okay with your friends as an adult. Uh, even when you weren't an adult, you could probably make some friends pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, but you've never had a Verve friend. That's okay. I mean, that I'm, friend... I'm, I'm real happy with the friendship I have. No, but that friend. I mean, your friend might take you up the steps to the top of the house, but a verve friend is going to make the hole in the roof and lower you down in front of Jesus. This is deeply problematic. I mean, this isn't verb groups, small groups, iron sharpens iron. Being around other Christians is important. I, 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 I get that and I agree. But you can't tell me that the, the older men in my group who uh, go to McDonald's and drink coffee together that they're not friends and that God isn't working in the midst of them and just their, their faithfulness to one another. And they have their own small group, even though they don't call it that. Right. Well, and they're not like, Oh, let's spend a hundred dollars on some video series for something. Right. They're just, they're just being friends. And it's, it's such a strange modern thing where we turn the most basic human interactions. Friendship has existed for (laughs) most of human history. And, and yet now we're like, but, we have added so much garbage to our lives that friendship seems so hard that now we have to make it something else. But there is this thing where it's like, if you're not friend, if you're not being friends in the church, you're not really being friends. And we push against that as Lutherans with the doctrine of vocation. Be a friend and be a friend out in the world. God wants you to be a good friend. He wants you to be a good parent and spouse and worker or employer, whatever it might be. You you don't have to you don't have to bring that into the church and to make it good because the goodness is in Christ and I have friends outside of the Verve group what and we're great <laughs> I know hard to imagine <laughs> all right let's see if we can get through this sermon he's only got like two and a half minutes left. all right all right. Uh, we do a couple of verb group semesters a year, and uh, we have a new September semester. Which is hard. September semester is like a semester. I don't know what it is. It's a, it's a special one-month semester, and then we'll do a longer fall semester after that. But this is a chance for you. Like, if you're not so sure about this whole group thing, which I totally understand, well, this is a chance to just get in one for four weeks. Try it out, right? And we all need to be in a group. I am always in one, sometimes two. If you're not in one, 
you need to be in one. And you can sign up today at verve.group, verve.group. We all need friends to, to carry us and for us to carry. And we all need Jesus. And so let, let's pray for all that, okay? Let's, let's pray together. Let's talk to God. All right, we're not going to let him pray for us. Because I guarantee you what he's going to do in the prayer is lead people to, number one, be a better friend. But in order to be a better friend, you got to have Jesus as your friend. And so if you want to accept Jesus, go ahead and do that now. So he will get to what a friend we have in Jesus, just yeah. in the worst possible way. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so... I can't wait to hear the next one. Oh, uh, but the lady pastor. <laughs> yes. She's raring to go. Now, we'll say she's 50 minutes long, and I have cut. She loves to tell stories. Okay. But I cut them out. Not all of them. I left a few in there, but it's like, are you kidding me? You're making your point by telling stories. But she's going to use the exact same text that... Uh, that this Yahoo just got through using. But it's not going to be about joining Verve groups and being no, a good... No, isn't that, okay. isn't that wild? She huh. doesn't come up with that interpretation. Okay. All okay. right, let's jump right in. Right, all right, all right, all right. Good morning, church. Woo! Man, I got to tell you something. 9 a.m. was something else. We just had a packed house. So many thrivers bringing friends and family members and people in their community here. And God just had a great experience for us. And how many of you are thankful God's got a double portion? And so I believe 11 a.m., God has got something good. It's already begun. If you are ready to receive the fullness of what God has for you today, put your hand up in the air and say, yeah. Well, she's already annoying me. What? <laughs> it's so different than what we understand preaching to be. She's working the crowd. You've never told your second service that God is a double portion God, and so the people who are here at 11 are going to get a double than the, the, the people who were here earlier. You've never done that? Well, it makes me wonder what she said to the 9 o'clock people, too. You're like, well, you're getting the double portion. I don't know what she said or not. It's just... This crowd working, this kind of cheerleading, it's a very different than our first recording because he didn't have that. Because he didn't have that audience. And it does kind of suck some of the energy out of it. And to me, it's manipulation. I mean, she's getting them into a, a, an emotional and physical state that suits her ends. I pared this down. I, I honestly did not think that our listening audience could take it. Well, you didn't pare it down enough. <laughs> it's already it's already hurts. All right. Well, she's going to jump right straight into reading the scripture, if I recall correctly. Through the Roof has been our series. What a great series this has been. And this is the final week. And Mark chapter 2 has been our passage that Pastor Jake has been teaching from, um, really pulling back the curtain on and going deeper into the Word of God and bringing truths and revelation for us in this series. And today's going to be no exception. We're going to go back to Mark chapter 2. And before I introduce to you the title of this message here today, I'm going to read you Mark chapter 2, verse 1 through 12. And hey, y'all ready for some scripture? Can I read some scripture to you this morning? All right, all right. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says this. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. 
Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men carried a paralyzed man on a mat. How many of you all remember the week with Jaron on the mat? That was a good week, all right? Verse 4, they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, almost done. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Verse 10, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man, here's the word, has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. I didn't listen to all the sermons in this series, but clearly they've already tackled this text once, which I assume would be her husband when she said about Pastor Jeremy or whatever his name is. Right. The other thing that I love hearing is her saying, I'm almost done. As if this church clearly doesn't hear the pastor, or in this case, the lady pastor, read much text that yeah. they only read one or two verses and that's it. But to read an actual narrative, they're not used to it. She's giving them verse markers as she goes, which I'm like, well, that's actually not half bad. So people who are trying to follow along can follow along. Oh, um, do, you, do you really think in a church like this that there are people following along? I think probably most of the people that come through that door have their Bible in their hand. Because that's the culture of the place. You correct me. I that's a very that to me is evangelical culture is to bring your own Bible to church. No, there's not a soul in this place that has their own Bible. Okay, well, I then I'm happy to stand corrected. There's because the verses are on the screen. Okay, why so, do I need to bring my Bible if the verses are going to be on the screen anyway? Right, and that's an interesting transition. Well, because you're supposed to bring your Bible to church even if you don't open it. That was in the '80s. Well, like any good Lutheran, I'm behind my times on what Lutherans are or what evangelicals are getting up to. So, okay, f fair enough. But then it's weirder, right? It's on the screen; people are following along. You don't necessarily need the verse markers as much. But nor do I need to tell everybody <laughs> I'm almost done. Right. In the beginning of the series, Through the Roof, Pastor Jake had read this passage of Scripture to us, and he talked about that last statement, we've never seen anything like this before. And we are believing as pastors, we are believing as a staff, we are praying over you, over your families, over your marriages, your finances, this church, that we're going to end 2019, and in faith, we too are going to declare, we have never seen anything like this before. If you want to believe that for your life, say, yeah. All right. Mark chapter 2, through the roof. If you're taking notes this morning, write this down. The title of this message today is, 
through the roof and to your breakthrough. Through the roof and to your breakthrough. So this goes back to what you asked earlier. You asked if the friends would play a significant part. And they they do, obviously, in Mark chapter 2, make a special appearance in this sermon. But it's really about finding and having your breakthrough. It's about you. Wow. No matter what's going to be said at this point, her theme is through the roof your breakthrough. Right. And if I'm not mistaken, this has been the entire sermon series. It has something to do with breakthrough. That's what caught my eye. And when I started listening to it and what's the breakthrough? Uh, The hole in the roof? When we think about breakthroughs, we think about kind of breaking through, right? Breaking the glass ceiling, whatever it was. They're breaking through the roof to get down to Jesus. But we're already in suspect territory because Jesus has already been put to the side. And who becomes center stage? Well, you. Right. Right. And now whoever we can gather into the story that can encapsulate you is going to be the focus. I mean, I don't have to listen to this sermon to know that's what's going to happen because that's what themes do. She's given us the theme of this sermon. She's given us the point of this sermon. And if if the theme of your sermon doesn't capture Christ in some way... It's not going to have Christ in it. So the theme of the first sermon that we've heard is join a verve group so you can have good friends. Well, it's be a good friend. And where's Christ in that? And so this one has already, she's already shown us the cards, so to speak, to say that the theme is about looking for, waiting for, expecting, praying for your breakthrough. Right. And again, <laughs> there's no Jesus in that. Now, Credit to both of these sermons structurally in the fact that they have clearly forward-loaded thematic statements. That's actually good. I've listened to better content sermons with poor structure where you're like, okay, you proclaim Jesus and forgiveness of sins, but I have no idea what you're trying to say. You are always so quick to put the best construction on it. In my opinion... No matter how much you polish a turd, what do you have? Um, there's an art of polishing a turd. It's still a turd. Yeah, but there's an art of it. You could. Oh no, I, there was a MythBusters on whether you could do it or not, and they did it. I remember. And so, right. I'm not. I'm not saying this is good. What I am saying is, there's a reason why we do this. If it was just bad, us even talking about it wouldn't be productive. Looking at it and being able to look at the faults of it to help us better see the good stuff. But there's good stuff here too. I mean, it's not it's not just jibber jabber. I mean, if you it, there's a reason why we don't just do like a Pentecostal speaking in tongue session cuz what what could you even possibly say other than this is nonsense? This isn't nonsense. It has structure and that structure is at least it, at least in this one context it's good. But structure alone does not a good sermon make. And that's my point. Fair enough. In Mark chapter 2, we see this paralyzed man. He's the highlighted character of the story that we are brought into and able to hear about, read about, learn about. And this paralyzed man was in need of a breakthrough. He was in need of a miracle. He was in need of going from brokenness to wholeness. Ever been there before? He was physically 
immovable, had run out of options and was now left with his current state of being physically immovable, probably a little bit isolated, and even removed from culture and the daily activity of his town. 2019, here we are, it's still January. It's a natural time for new goals, new faith, fresh vision, to hear from God, maybe even to throw some words down on a vision board or planner or paper, uh, things you're just desiring and longing for. And I just wonder if anyone is here this morning and you find yourself contemplating Maybe believe in God for something specific that possibly you believed in for in 2018. Maybe something specific that you even believe God for in 2017. Something that has been almost immovable, paralyzed, unable to change. And maybe you would even say 2012, this thing was present in your life. And here you are, the start of 2019. This thing is still present. It's still there in your life. It's still there in your mind and your emotions and your marriage and your family. And you might even be contemplating, is it worth it? Is God able to do anything with this thing? Or is this just a part of me, my weakness, our marriage, my family? Is this just a part of who we are? Are. Some of you, I believe, today are struggling to believe in 2019 that God wants to do the impossible in your situation. Did you get all that? You're believing God in 2012, 13. Whatever you're believing God for, it's obviously something that he's not moving are not doing in your life to immobilize you and paralyze you. Yeah, well, this is what I talked about earlier is being willing and daring enough to let a physical malady be a physical malady, but we can't, right? No, it's got to jump the river, so to speak, over into the spiritual, doesn't it? Right. Which is easy to do. I mean, this right. is a switch everybody does, and I think right. you pointed out earlier, we all do it. Yeah, and it's not awful to just do that, because not everybody is paralyzed. And so you have to kind of broaden it somehow, some way. This is a really interesting picture, because she's talking about, I think, prayer, Uh these people who have some need. She's being deeply vague about it, although she's mentioned marriage twice. And so she's feeling that real keenly. She doesn't know the freight train that is coming for her in 2020. Now, right. does she? No. <laughs> and that's, I mean, and isn't it interesting what a year 2020 is that we just like, oh, sweet doe-eyed child. You have no idea what, what these things are. And she's being so vague. She's getting there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding what she's saying because she's started to unpack it, right? Something's going on in my life, kind of the hidden part of my life, which is why she's talking about marriage and family too. Do you take polished turds and like place them on your mantle at the house? Is that what you do? Uh, no, I, I, I typically I, like to flush them. I, I like to get rid of them. I'm always just like, could, could you develop this in a proper sermon? And you could. Now, she's going she's gonna to take it to an awful place. You think? But her current, her, the, the development right now isn't out of the norm of a good sermon. All right. We'll let her go some more. Well, I just, but I do want to say, like, she's trying to shoehorn some kind of self-help nonsense 
into God's word instead of letting God's word be God's word. And she's going to shoehorn it with a text that really doesn't even suit it. This man's suffering is not particularly unique. That's one of the things we like to do with this guy because he, he seems like such a singular character. There, there are paralyzed, destitute people littered all over Palestine, littered all over Galilee, littered all over. To turn this into some kind of special suffering is sadly not accurate. But she's in Colorado, and there's nothing but pretty people <laughs> and young people. I've been to Colorado. And, and vibrant is, people. They, they jog so much. It's kind of true. Uh, and mountain bike and do and they're and in the winter they're skiing instead of just trembling in their houses cold freezing to death it's it's kind of awful but if you just took what she was saying here now even though she's saying it poorly because she's being so vague there is a there is a good sermon at least in that now she, she's gonna she's gonna mess it up and she's she's not gonna fumble the ball on the goal line she's gonna fumble the ball and for a safety right I mean it's just gonna be that bad but. I can understand this is good law, and and oftentimes an evangelical preacher does good law because they get the law, and that's all they get. Right. So, so it doesn't surprise me that this is good. She's 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 drawing us into a problem, and, and it's a problem that almost everybody would be like, oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I've been wanting in my life that I haven't gotten, and. She hasn't been coarse enough to say a Lamborghini or a yacht. Right, but she right. might as well be saying that because well, she's touching on something of the old Adam. The sure. old Adam is never satisfied. Right. And so now, if if really, if my new man in Christ is a Doberman <laughs> pincher and my old Adam is a pit bull, she's feeding my pit bull right now. Well, of course, of course. And, and with because, these two dogs, they're constantly fighting. Yeah. And if I starve one and feed the other, the one I feed is the one that's going to win the fight. She is feeding my old Adam because she is making me uncontent with what God is and has done. In the last, what, did she go back to 2012? Right, so in the last seven years, and, and to really kind of focus on that. So how do we know we need breakthrough, church? Heading into 2019, these things that have been immovable, present year after year, or maybe it's something new that has brought itself to your attention in 2019 that sits before you, how do you know when you're in need of a breakthrough? Here's one of many answers that I have found in my life. I have found that a breakthrough is needed in my life and in my journey with God, when everything in the natural will not and cannot bring change to that thing or situation that is before me. When literally that thing, nothing I can do, no money I can put to it, no counseling I've gone through, no recovery I've walked through, no conversation, not enough church services, podcasts, worship music played, is moving this thing where it feels immovable. When those things present themselves to your life, we are in need of a breakthrough. And when God brings breakthrough to things in our world, I want you to know what's going to happen is you are going to move through that thing and beyond it. You're going to know you're experiencing breakthrough because there will be a sudden, someone say sudden, there will be a sudden change or a sudden advancement. 
Okay, I've listened to this several times, and I still have no idea what she's talking about. I mean, she's talking about these people who've been stuck for so long. And what she's saying is, you're just one prayer, one worship service, one worship song away from it just suddenly happening. But did you notice how she immediately went to, this is how I see things in my life. She became the example to follow. And what this is going to do, that's going to springboard us into individual stories. This is the way this lady pastor preaches. I'll be very interested to see how much the text is important in that in that way now. We we've left the text. <laughs> and 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 that's and that's a the point that I wanted to make is that you can start off reading the text and you can have a person say, we're, we're in this text, and then have her pluck out this character who was immovable, stuck, all socially isolated, what all the things she's given to him, which aren't even actually in the text, and that's it. And you can be fooled into thinking, because you've just been lied to, that was a perfectly biblical sermon. Right. We're just in self-help territory, and there's a reason why that's a big section at the bookstore. <laughs> and that's a reason why churches devolve into this. Because being told that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that sometimes the, the immovable things in your life aren't going to be lifted until you're called home to glory. If you know your Bible, this stuff offends you. Because you're like, what about Paul and the, and the thorn in his flesh? And God saying... My grace is sufficient for you. Is she going to say in this, whatever problem you're facing, God's grace is sufficient for you? The point is that if what you're preaching is completely in line with what the world preaches, you're, you, it, it can't you're be doing right. It, wrong. <laughs> it can't be right. It can't be right. Because who else is going to preach Christ crucified for your sins and your salvation and your eternal life? No one else is going to do that. And if you're like, yeah, but that message isn't going to really resonate with my folks. It's not about resonating, right? It's, uh, I mean, at that point, you're just giving a, a seminar where they pay on the back end instead of the front end. I want to just speak to your need here for a moment. Because sometimes breakthrough is needed for tangible things, things you can put your hand on, you can identify, but sometimes they're not, they're not tangible. They're hard to put our finger on and grasp, but we know there's something there that's off, it's stealing, it's robbing, it's paralyzing a place of our life and faith. And I believe God wants to bring in 2019 for some of you breakthrough through past pain, through disappointment, breakthrough through sickness, financial crisis. See, this paralyzed man, he needed breakthrough. He needed sudden change. He needed something supernatural to collide with his natural, immovable situation and body. He was unable to move. And I just want to remind us, again, I just want to set the stage here for us this morning. When we walk through things, and there's things that kind of hang out a day, a month, a year longer than they should, and they're immovable. I want you to know, if, if they are left untouched by the presence of God, 
if they are let unleft covered up and kind of hidden and tucked away and not brought out and uncovered and touched by the presence of God, those very things can begin to paralyze pockets of our journey and our faith with God. And we'll be walking with God and then something happens and it's like, have you ever just felt like, I don't have the faith for that. I don't have the energy for that. God, that just, I don't even think I have the, the patience or the mercy. Or I'm telling you, and when things are left untouched by the presence of God, they can paralyze us. We can become paralyzed to trust again, to dream again, to hope again. How about just have faith? And the fact that God is real and he is good again. Where's Jesus? Bringing up faith is so critical and it's always so easy to mess up. Because you, if you turn faith into a, a thing that we just have, like it's Play-Doh, it's useless. But she does give us an object for faith here. She says in God's goodness. So she's not asking you to put your faith in Jesus. She's asking you to put your faith in this big kind of good God who wants you to have good stuff. And... Ultimately, one of the things I've noticed here is she's never once asked these people to question what they wanted. And I was thinking about the Lord's Prayer in this, right? We ask God for material stuff. Give us this day our daily bread. We ask him for spiritual help throughout. And, and, but instead, it's, it's, it's kept so small <laughs> by her, right? And these problems are made so individualized Maybe it's right at this moment that I've realized, I don't know what how that congregation sees themselves, but the way she talks to them is that she's talking to a sea of strangers and she doesn't have any expectation of them. What about, what about supporting each other and growing each other in faith? I mean, that is what a congregation is about. I always say one of the things that we've got a congregation is learning, is one, learning that maybe my problems aren't the only thing for me to be worried about. I've got somebody I've got somebody who sits next to me Sunday in Sunday out who has who has cancer and what can I do for them instead of my problem uh and uh I I love you know like we pray for our daily bread I'm not just praying for me I'm praying for everyone this is one of the problems with self-help is it always says you know just just you just uh, the singular the singular you not the plural you and scripturally we're always drawn into the plural you God's plan, friends, is never to leave us in these paralyzed, unchanged places. It is never his plan. We experience them. We will face them. But his plan, because of the cross, because that he sent his only son who died and shed his blood, was buried and rose again, because of that process, it's not a fairy tale. It's not a story to be told. It is truth and it is real. And because of that, he never desires for you to stay in these places that feel immovable, that bring a paralyzing uh, feeling and atmosphere to your faith in your life. But he desires us to move through them for his glory. Here comes Jesus. And so, I mean, and that, then he walked right out of the room. Right. And, and so it's, this is, I mean, it's at least uh, a pleasant surprise to hear about the cross. Sure. Uh, that process, which is a, a very strange process, way yeah. to talk about uh, what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Do you say that in the second article of the creed when you're teaching the catechumens that we're going to walk through this process of being incarnate, 
dying, descending into hell, on the third day rose again. When you're when you're going through that, what we call the humiliation of Christ and the exaltation of Christ, yeah. do you talk about that process? No, no. We can talk about that history. You oh, talk okay. about the oh, truth. You oh. talk about that accomplishment. Oh. And that I mean, that's what's interesting is she doesn't point to a single accomplishment in what Christ has done. It is a process which finally draws us into it to do the accomplishing because you notice that even as she said all that she didn't talk about the forgiveness of sins she didn't talk about life everlasting no she's giving a false gospel in that what jesus has done will allow you not to experience any of these immobilizing things that she's been so vague on (laughs) right and so which i scream how do you know this? She doesn't. That's the problem. She's taking a nugget of truth here. Jesus does not want us to uh, to experience suffering. He doesn't. Uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, that's... The giving of Christ is to substitute for us so that we don't have to know what our sins truly cost. Sure, but in this veil of tears, there's always going to be suffering. I mean, you think about Jacob, who walks with a limp for the rest of his life as a result of wrestling with the Lord. If he were to sit down with this lady pastor and say, you know, I've been limping for a long time. Yeah. What would she say? Well, the Lord doesn't want you to limp any longer. Well... (laughs) No, I mean, the Lord gave him that limb. Right. right. Uh, and Just like and, and, your example, the Lord gave the thorn in the flesh, whatever yeah. it was, to St. Paul, which yeah. was most likely uh, an eye ailment. And Or Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, right? He says, take up suffering. Uh, don't, don't shy away from it. So if you can only see that, you're not seeing it the whole picture. Yes, Jesus mourns for us in our suffering. Jesus mourns in the face of death. But but that doesn't mean that he will remove it. No, or that it's even good that he does. Because sometimes we have a suffering in our life that spares us from a greater suffering. Sometimes we have a suffering that reminds us. Well, we have all these biblical ideas of suffering. We have, a, we have suffering that purifies us. And certainly suffering is always there to draw us closer to Christ. But she's not saying sufferings are to draw us closer to Christ. She's that saying is, it's a bad thing. That if the Lord brings it about to train you, that somehow or another that is bad. Yeah, which finally she's kind of playing with the idea that, that God's not really in control of the world enough with suffering. Uh, suffering happens apart from God. Nothing happens apart from God. God doesn't rejoice in suffering. Sin has brought it around that suffering exists. God's now going to use suffering as a tool, not a tool natural to him, but as an alien tool to still bring about his will for us. To see all suffering as something to be escaped from is foolish. I mean... But that's how they use the verse when they say, Jesus came that you might have an abundant life. And abundant life is not eternal life, which is the correct interpretation. It is a life free of suffering. The problem with this sermon is the same problem as the last sermon, which is neither of these sermons have eternity in view. They have the coming year in view. (laughs) They have tomorrow in view. They cannot look beyond death itself 
to what God has in store for us. And I believe today I just fell in prayer as I was preparing. Some of you, you are bringing real things into the house of God this morning. You have real things that feel immovable, that feel big, that you've maybe even begun to say is just who I am. It's just my makeup. It's just my weakness. It's just our marriage. It's just our financial struggle. And the good news is, is you have been brought to the house of God today, not just because you got up with your alarm and the kids weren't demon-possessed. Can I get an amen, Mom? And you didn't bite with your husband on the way here. You were brought to the house of God because God's going to here to tell you this morning at the start of 2019, you don't need to stay there. You don't need to remain there. I've got good things for you, and it's time to break through. If you believe that, say, yeah, God. What about the real issue of everybody's sin that's walking in there, including her own? Yeah, well, that's what's so deeply foolish. Of course we have real problems. I mean, that's the thing. Like, it, it's, it's so no-duh that we do it every Sunday. You're a sinner. You've sinned in thought, word, and deed by what you've done and by what you've left undone. Which you deserve hell for. Right. And you say it. I justly deserve your present. I justly deserve a lightning bolt right now. And I deserve to be in hell forever. And honestly, that's a place where people really struggle. They're, they're willing to admit they have issues. They're not willing to admit that they deserve them. And what we do is we come to the grace of God revealed in Christ. And we say, but God, but God has given us peace at the last. And it's not going to be through your breakthrough moment that you create yourself. So I would say that the immovable object is the old Adam, it's the world, and it's the devil. This unholy trinity. This is the unmovable, she likes to say that word, this paralyzing thing that we live with on a constant daily basis. Right. And the breakthrough moment for us is our baptism. (laughs) When Jesus acts on us and says, I have saved you, and we are we are taken out of the grasp of those things that paralyze us, really. Sounds good to me. And 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 what do we do? We we do that daily. Our baptism is a I mean, Luther understood this so well and so beautifully. Our baptism is a daily return to the waters, repentance, forgiveness. He breaks through every day. And it's a miracle every day. And that's what's so sad about this is she's like, Don't that's not good enough. You need the bigger thing, that this guy still died. His friends still died. Everybody in that room died. No miracle that Jesus performed let them escape death. Even even the even the miracles that he did that escaped death temporarily, they still died. <laughs> Lazarus had a second funeral. That's correct. And so that's where we have to kind of push things up against and say, Look, yeah, you're paralyzed. You're going to be paralyzed your entire life, barring whatever it might be. But that's not the end of it. You're not going to die a paralyzed person. You're going to live in Christ and your legs are going to work. And that's eternal. And again, when we keep our eyes fixed on the the eternal, then and only then does suffering in this world begin to make sense and become bearable. <laughs> and we move past this gobbledygook self-help stuff where Jesus is giving us the energy to do it ourselves. And in fact, he is the solution completely and totally. When he said it's finished, he wasn't saying, I did my part. He's saying, I did everything. Come on, church. Where are you at this morning? If you believe that, say, yeah, God. Yeah, God. 
Three things I notice that this man experienced, that this man, that moved this man through the roof into his breakthrough. Number one is this, if you're taking notes. This man had breakthrough friends. Woo. We are youth pastors. We'd always say, show me your friends. I'll show you your future. So here the friends just make an honorable mention. So I assume that they were a verve group. Is that kind of what you're thinking based on the first sermon? Right. So now she is drawing them into this community, but it's a, it's a community of self-actualization instead of a community that's just like, we need what Christ has together. And I'm telling you what, that statement has um, graduated from teenage years. And how many of you agree that even as adults, show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Breakthrough friends. Verse 3, four men arrived to the house carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Okay, lean in with me, church. These friends, at some point in this man's journey, became more concerned with his healing than the reality of his brokenness. Man, I'm so thankful for friends who listen. I'm so thankful for friends who care. I'm so thankful for my mama who's on speed dial and she will feel bad for me any time of the day, month, week, year. How many of you got one of those mamas? No one? I'm sorry. You can borrow mine. It's always, oh, honey, doesn't that Jacob know how much you're doing? I love my mama. I love it. I'm so thankful for friends who listen, who will cry with me and, and listen and care, and mamas who are on speed dial. But then there comes a time, church, when we need friends who will say, it is time to get your breakthrough. I have listened, and I'm with you. I'm crying, and I believe you, but I believe it is time to move from this place of being immovable with this situation, with this fear, with this emotion, and it's time to move through it and get your breakthrough. It's time to break through your pain, your worry, your struggle. Because how many of y'all know we all got it? We all got worry. We all got pain. We all got struggle. Everyone has a story in this house this morning. These men moved this man from a place of isolation and dependency on others to the place of his breakthrough. I believe it was week two, Jake said, he talked about, it was the week Jaron was on the mat and he had those men carrying him on the mat. And he said, we need to carry those we care about to the place that distributes God's grace. Man, that statement has just been hounding me this month. I know it's been impacting you as you've been emailing into the office and sharing how God is now using you at your work and with your family and in your community of influence. But, you know, these men, this is what they did. Something came over them, these four men, where they were like, this is enough. I, I, this is our friend. This is, look at his life. Look at how removed he is, how isolated he is. He, he's removed from everything out there. He can't even get to where Jesus is, this Jesus who's doing miracles. And our friend needs a miracle. And something came over these men. And they made a decision to move him from a place of isolation and dependency on others to a place of his breakthrough. And two critical things had to happen for that move from where this paralyzed man was all the way to where Jesus was. And number one was this man, the paralyzed man, had to give his friends permission. 
He had to give him permission. I just believe that. I believe they were just more like, hey, yo, bro, you can't move, so it doesn't really matter what you think. We're just taking you. I just, I just don't feel like that happened. I, I just imagine a conversation. Hey, there's this Jesus. He's healing. There's miracles, bro. You need one. Can, can we, can us guys take you? We got you. We're strong. Promise we won't drop you. Are you willing to, do we, we need your permission, man. And I just imagine he, him giving, okay, okay. He gives them permission and two. Then they took their position and moved him to his miracle. He gives them permission. And then the friends physically take their position. Get these handles, put them on this mat. And they begin to move him to his miracle. <laughs> now, Pastor Okri, you... I did my best to get through that extended set of her blathering on. We've, we've moved from a self-help to group therapy. So that's, I mean, so that's a step. But it, it's, it's still deeply what, what we call atomized, right? Everything is viewed individualistically. You're an individual, and as an individual, you need to help friends, but you also need to be helped. It's also kind of the lamest picture in the world that the example that she could bring forward was talking to her mom on the phone to complain about her husband. <laughs> right? Like the you being a good friend isn't being a, a a person to kind of just hear the complaints and say, "Yeah, that's a bummer." Uh I I think that's 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 a part of just relationship and friendship. Of but course. sometimes friendship is telling the other friend, "Suck it up, buttercup." Right, but even more, the the point is to bring them to Jesus. And she's saying that, but she's saying that in the most flaccid way, which really doesn't get us anywhere way, which is like somehow, some way, Jesus will actualize you to punch through. And that's not Jesus. Jesus does it. Jesus is what you need. You don't need a breakthrough. Jesus has broken through. He's broken the bonds of hell. This is my point. There's like, there's a sliver of an idea in this sermon, which is an excellent sermon. Jesus has broken the bonds of hell. He's broken the bonds that have held this person. He's, he's broken our bonds. So that now as we live life with its mixed bag of blessings and curses and, and joys and sufferings, if you paint a picture that says the law is suffering and the gospel is overcoming suffering, that's a really awful law gospel paradigm. But I can really hear the sermon that you're talking about if you f put the focus on Jesus. Yeah. In that Jesus breaks through heaven to come to earth. Jesus breaks through Mary's womb to become flesh. Jesus breaks through living under the law in your place. Jesus breaks through dying the death that you deserve. Jesus, as you say, breaks the bonds of death. Jesus then is ascended up into heaven and really breaks through. Yeah, and opens the way for us. Right. right? Yeah. And I mean, what like, a beautiful sermon this could be regarding breakthrough, but hell no. Right. No, hell it, it's, no. It's, it's, it, because it's so small and really kind of petty in how it views our situation. If all it is is stuff that I've been hanging on to, that stuff that stuff is, is going to hang on to me through 2021, and it's going to hang on to me for my entire life, maybe. That doesn't define me. And she's saying, let that, let that garbage define you. Instead, we need to be like Paul and say, that doesn't define me. 
Christ Jesus' death on the cross defines me. And I totally forgot about Jesus breaking through into baptism. I mean, where the heavens themselves are opened up. This is my beloved son. I mean, you could go on and on with Jesus doing the breakthrough for you instead of, well, we've already made the point, you looking for your breakthrough from God. But this impromptu sermon writing session has been brought to you by Lutheran (laughs) pastors who know their jobs. Number two is this. These men had breakthrough resolve. Breakthrough resolve. Now, I'm terrible with grammar and English and everything, and if you don't like the top of my points, don't say anything, okay? But that's it for me. Breakthrough resolve, period. Breakthrough resolve. Woo! How strange. How out of the ordinary. How desperate these men's desire was for Jesus to heal their friend. They dug a hole in the roof of this house. I have found in my life, and I don't know if you found this in your life, but breakthrough, sudden change, a sudden advancement, a moving through an immovable situation almost always comes in the strangest ways, in ways that don't make sense, I didn't expect, that I, you know, I'm thinking, I'm looking at this situation. Have you ever found yourself doing this? Please tell me this, this preacher's wife isn't by herself. I've got a situation, I'm like, Lord, if you do A, B, and C, we're totally going to get to D. Y'all know what I'm talking about? If you just move this, give that, open that door, um, gift that resource, we're totally going to be where we need to be at the end of 2019. But it seems like God never takes my ideas, even though they're great. And he brings breakthrough and change, and he brings sudden advancement in ways that do not make sense. Listen, this was a Jewish home, not a synagogue. Jesus was doing the supernatural, the miraculous, not even in the appropriate place. It was in someone's house. And commentaries say this was a home, a Jewish home, so it had no upper room. I know she said for us not to uh, criticize her her points, but this is what we do, right? I mean, this is the critique. We're we're trying to see if what is being said about the text and about salvation and Jesus is actually correct. But, hey, at least, uh, you know, she broke open a commentary. To find out that they were in a house, which is what the text has already told us. Oh, so we didn't really need well, to. Well, I don't think you needed a commentary for that point. Although, her point that it didn't have an upper room, it, it's a strange thing to want to convince us of. It almost certainly had an upper room. It, it, but, again... Be- because there would have been steps on one side of the wall going up there. Which is how they got on the roof. It's, I, I know. You're, like, you're trying to imagine a, a, like a medieval house. And it's not. <laughs> it's it is completely different because they're in an arid uh, climate. Uh, they need it's going to be a flat roof. But there wasn't a yard like there was in the first sermon. Well, right. All all of this aside, the roof was able to be torn apart, and the upper room wasn't the entire. It wasn't a second story. It was just a, a little section on top. Uh, for people to go up into out patio of their patio area, yeah, out of their main living area, and so again, this was not shingles. It wasn't excellent construction. It was well, I I I don't even want to speculate on what it was. I think of it as kind of like mud and straw, kind of an adobe kind of stuff. That's that you can destroy, and it's not 
we're not talking about you know bringing in a contractor and and roofers to <laughs> repair it you just go oh i gotta go get some more mud and patch this thing up all of this is to say like their persistence is a significant portion of the text they didn't look at what was a mild inconvenience and say well i guess that's, that's not today right instead they they said we're going to be persistent but to act like their persistence was some kind of herculean i'm lifting up the earth on my back or whatever is to overplay it because the point isn't the friends what the point is jesus what and they needed to get so him that to jesus these men finally I mean, I just imagine them carrying him, their buddy, their best friend, reassuring him the entire time. It's all going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And then I just, can you imagine the pride this man had to swallow as a man to be carried like a child by his friends through the town? And then lowered through a roof. I mean, just think about this. The pride. The self, like, everything about himself that maybe he was just barely holding on to that he had to let go of. And then to be lowered in a packed house in front of everyone in his community that he probably knew. And, you know, Jewish homes in this time, the top layer was tiles. That's what protected and covered the top layer of this roof. So these men, by the time they actually get their buddy, reassuring him, it's all going to be good, we got you. And they get him to the top of this roof and set him down. They got to get on their hands and knees, and they got to remove these tiles. I mean, can you, just the sound, the clicking, the clanging. And this paralyzed man just laying there thinking, oh my gosh, and probably just knowing everyone of influence that's in that room. And he's laying there, and the, the clicking and the clanging, and his buddies are probably like, dude, it's going to be okay. I just, this is going to be it. This is it, man. We just believe it. Just hold on. Just hold on. And then they have to dig a hole under the tiles. And then I just imagine these men shaking their forearms and biceps, just shaking, sweat dripping off their nose because they now need to lower him and they don't want to wound him further. I don't believe a word of what she has just said. Not a word. Not a thing. Nor do I. The The tiled roof is... Well, and this is what happens, right? Is And you see it in paintings. Is... It's like your world, but slightly different. And so we just imagine Capernaum like a Mediterranean villa. <laughs> and it's not. The average person could afford tiles. I mean, you have to fire those things. And, and you need tiles for what? To run the rain off. These people, when it rained, they wanted to collect that rain. They didn't want it to just run off. And I don't pretend to be an expert in first century Jewish architecture. architecture yeah. But we do have examples of houses from this period, and they're, fl they're flat-topped, and, and they use the house, or they use the roof as a patio as, and a garden and, and lots of different stuff. There was almost always a small section at the top that was enclosed, which was the guest house, and, and the rest of the house was inside. The stable was inside the, the first floor of the house, right? These, because these people, they needed to maximize their use of space. This is why 
one of the guys, I believe, during the time of the judges, I'm glad you said this, he's the one who said, Lord, whatever comes out of my house first, I'll sacrifice it if you let us win something, right, something, right. something. He's expecting an animal right. to come out of his home, and doggone it, it's his daughter. Yeah, and even more interestingly, the front door opened into this stable area, so it made sense, like, oh, some stupid goat comes out chewing his cud and like, well, I'm going to get sacrificed. Well, yeah, yeah, that's the last time he yeah. does that. Yeah. Anyway, the point is, the point is, is that animals were kept inside these homes. Which have you ever been there with someone? Oh God, I want, I want to invite them, or I want to tell them about Jesus, or I want to encourage them with the scripture. But what if you don't come through? I mean, I don't want to wound them further. I don't want to push them farther. And just shaking, they lower him in front of everyone, this man, not a child, these men, because they believed that something was going to take place. You know, 2019, some of us, we got to just get ourselves some nasty, ugly, dirt-covered shovels. We just got to walk around with them. Walk around with them in our life, in our situation. Some of you got to get a weird old shovel, and in your prayer time, you just got to take it in your prayer time. Men, some of you need to get yourself a shovel, hang it up in your house. Women, just let it be there for a little bit, and tell your wife, this year, we're going we're gonna to dig for our breakthrough. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care how foolish it might seem. I don't care how out of the ordinary it is. I'm going to deal for breakthrough. I'm going to dig for breakthrough in our marriage, for our children, for our finances, for our church, for our community, for this addiction, for this depression, for our emotions, through our past pain, until we see God move. Come on, church. Where are you at this morning? The visual application. Yeah. And where are we digging? I think you asked that. Where where are we isn't there like laws regarding digging like in your yard in case you hit something you shouldn't hit? I mean, what are we digging? So she's just like I just want you to bring a shovel into your house as a reminder. Mm-hmm. And here's my thing, if you've got marital problems, <laughs> that shovel's only going to make you angry. And she says we're only you only have it in your house for a short time. Women, don't worry about it. Let the men hang it there. Right. Like you you're not going to need that shovel for your whole life. I mean, of course you are, it, based on what even she's saying. But and but this is the thing, right? She's saying like short-term victories is what constitutes our lives, not the eternal victory of Christ, but my short-term victory with my shovel. You know what's crazy about this is this is this she is doing pseudo sacramental picture. She's saying here's your visual item to to see what God wants to effectively make powerful in your life, right? I mean, it's it's gobbledygook. At this point, a Lutheran pastor would be saying, and you're baptized into Christ, and here's the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of your sins. God is breaking through into your life right now. <laughs> He's broken into this place. He wants to invade your very being with forgiveness. But do you see how there's such a dearth of sacrament in the evangelical church now she's really making almost the shovel out to be sacramental not a crucifix hanging on the wall where jesus reminding you that jesus died for you not a crucifix on the wall that says when jesus died on the cross he's stepping on the devil's head to crush him which is what he promised back in Genesis 3.15, but we've got to, like, come up with this 
shovel mentality. I, I mean, I wonder if there's somebody from this church who still has a shovel hanging up in their house today. No, nobody's doing well, this. I don't know. Nobody did this. You, you, nobody's taking this woman seriously. So it's so it's a so it's a nice idea that doesn't amount to anything, right? And and maybe and thank God for that, frankly, well, because it, it would have amounted to something if she had a story. Now, now, granted, you have to remember. I have cut the stories out because I don't give a rat's shovel about <laughs> the stories. But if she had a story about taking a shovel and hanging it on her wall, right, praying for her breakthrough, it would have had a lot more punch. But here's the thing: like she's talking about a, a physical digging through. They didn't use a shovel or anything. I mean, again, she is so committed to the emotional thrust of what she's wanting to say. Yeah, it's she not will, a child; it's a man. Yeah, she will manipulate that scene completely to right. serve it, even right. though, right. again, right. I it it it's almost certainly deeply inaccurate what she's saying. And this is a, an abuse of the theological ima- imagination because now it's becoming manipulative. But then what does this shovel become? It She's not asking you to dig a hole and shout your prayers into it even. She just wants you to have it there to be like, I'm going to keep digging, looking for the breakthrough. It's ridiculous. And, and you know what's crazy about digging? Is you dig and you dig and you dig and all you find yourself in is in a bigger hole. Mm. <laughs> and, and, and we need Christ to lift us out. Christ is our breakthrough. And she's like, she keeps pulling. She's like, this guy keeps going to Jesus. But Jesus is not the answer. And that's crazy to me. Like, she sees it in the narrative, but she can't just say, Jesus is the answer. It has to be us. Breakthrough. We just got to dig. Why? When people ask, why? Why do you have a weird shovel in your home? Why do you have shovel pictures on your iPhone screensaver and hung up in the cubby at work? What's up with the shovel? And you can let people know, because I'm digging, I don't know when and I don't know how, but God is going to do a miracle in my life in 2019. How do you dig, though? How? How do you dig for your breakthrough? Well, here's just a couple ideas. One, you got to get yourself some breakthrough friends. Friends who will eventually say, okay. Because I love you, because I'm here for you, it's time for you to move into the presence of Jesus and get your word. It's time to come out of isolation, get in the house, get in a small group, get to something. It's time for you to move and get in position in the presence of God. Number two, you got to get yourself some breakthrough resolve. And this comes through the power of the word of God in your life. What that means is you take your situation in 2019 and your life or your family, whatever it might be, and you take that thing when you're in your time alone with God, come on, church, we gotta, the only way we're going to be Christ-like is if we know him and this is how we know him. This is good, but Monday, Monday's coming. One of the, can I say sexiest things my husband does? Can I say that? One of the cutest things my husband does is um, I get up, you know, around 530, and 90% of the time in the morning, I come downstairs and that man is already up in his spot with his coffee, fireplace on, reading the word of God. And I see that almost every single morning. I think, he's digging. He's digging. He's digging for our family. He's digging for you. 
And what you're walking through, he's digging for our children. He's digging for himself. He's digging. And when you dig, how you dig is you take your situation. And when you're alone with God on that Monday, on that Wednesday, on that Friday, because this is a good word for Sunday, but how many of you know Monday's coming? And when you wake up Monday morning and you open up the word of God, you take, we talked about, the, talked about this in the beginning, giving God the authority. You take every situation, every circumstance, every disease, every financial crisis, every disunity moment in your marriage, every attack on your children, and you bring them before God and you begin to read the word and you take those words for your life and for your family. And then your Bible will start looking like this, all underlined and written on and circled because you believe that God's word has the power and the authority as you read it and as you pray. Man, I need a chunk of dirt up here. As you read it and as you pray and as you say, yes, God, I give you permission in this area that he has breakthrough, sudden advancement and change coming in your life. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. Breakthrough. Breakthrough. Yeah. I mean, Again, thematically very strong. We're breaking through. I, I got it. But it's, it's just so small. This world that she's painting is so small. And it's heartbreaking in that way. I have a God that's so big. I have a Savior that's done so much that I can go to a person who's dying and say, God's got this. I'm not going to say, here's your shovel. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find a breakthrough moment here. Well, and also added to that, they've got to find in their dying days breakthrough friends and breakthrough resolve. I mean, there's a lot of law that's being attached to this, and it's yeah. not even God's law. It's man-made law at yeah. that. What I have found is that evangelical sermons often address what I consider uh, kind of middle America problems. It's we're in some credit card debt. My marriage is tumultuous. Kids are getting mixed up in, in stuff that I don't want them to get mixed up in. They're, and those are real problems. Those are legitimate real problems. But they are kind of what I would call manageable problems from kind of a human perspective. You know, it's not my, my spouse is addicted to crack cocaine and is spending all of our money and we've literally been kicked out of our house and now I'm homeless. How do I stand by this man who is destroying our family, right? I mean, these are these are the real pastoral issues we face. Uh, we face we face smaller stuff too. Don't don't get me wrong. And and again, I I I never want to just I don't ever want to say to somebody, uh, come and talk to me once you're homeless, right? When they're dealing with financial problems, right? No. But if your savior isn't big enough to deal with homelessness and uh, and shattered families, right? Uh, not just a husband who uh, doesn't do the dishes, but a husband who is gone. <laughs> oh, uh, and, and a God who isn't big enough to deal with death itself. Your God's too small. And she has turned God into just the tiniest little thing. She's turned Jesus into the tiniest little thing. And he's so tiny that he doesn't even do it. <laughs> you do it. Uh, and may that never be. Because that's not, that's not the, the God of Scripture. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. Breakthrough. Oh, man, you've gathered here on purpose here this morning. You've gathered here on purpose because I believe God is putting things into motion in your life. The last one is this. This man experienced breakthrough 
that was spoken. Breakthrough was spoken. Verse 10, I love this. I love it when Jesus gets spicy. Maybe because I'm spicy. But I love it when he gets spicy with the Pharisees and the religious and people who are just out to prove him wrong. He says this in verse 10. But it's wrapped with so much love and grace, right? He says, so I will prove to you. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has, here's this word, the authority on earth to forgive sins. So, hey, all of you who are doubting me in this room, as this paralyzed man laid on this mat before his feet, every single one of you who are doubting me, I know your thoughts. I can hear your whispers. Every single one of you in this room, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It says, then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. Jesus spoke, and he was healed. Jesus spoke, and he was healed. In my life, I have experienced healing. I experienced physical healing on my body. So when I read Mark chapter 2, and Jesus says, I'm going to prove to you that I have authority on earth. Son, pick up your mat and walk. I say, yeah, that's what he does because he did it in my life. In church, he could do it in your life. He has the authority to heal physically, emotionally. Oh, man, I've experienced emotional healing. I went through something very private a couple years ago that was terrible. And only those closest to me knew what was happening. And friends, today, even last week, and I had someone say to me, Hannah, I don't understand how joy-filled you are, how much faith you have, how much energy you have for the kingdom. Like, you have so much faith. I know what you walk through, and I can say, yes, because I have experienced the God who heals. Church, are you awake this morning? Are you alive in the house of God? Oh, Pastor Oakry, we've kind of laughed through this entire little episode here. She's really trying to land this plane that she's started off with. And what I find interesting is, is that the people, she's had to do this several times. There is she brought that point to bear. Where are you, church? I mean, right. do, do you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. It's interesting. You can tell we're, we're hitting what, what she feels is the crescendo of this sermon. Uh, well, the music has come in. Right. You and, know, and, and, to... her, and she's in that upper register of sound. I mean, she's shouting at them at this point. To her, the most important point comes down to her own personal experience. Right. I just want to remind everybody, I have cut out many of her personal experiences. Because they're just fluff. But I've left these portions in here, and actually, sad to say, there's going to be another one Okay. that I just wanted you to hear. Well, I think it's important to hear them because it does, it does show what can so often happen where Jesus isn't enough because I think we just assume that everyone knows about Jesus, which is not true. You reach a point, no matter what it is, and, I, and not to dim diminish what she's saying. I mean, she's being very vague about what happened. I'm sure part of that is protecting her privacy. But you know, to me, it, it, it comes across as, without knowing the particulars, I don't find it particularly edifying. It's just kind of her just kind of vaguely uh, referencing something to develop an emotional response 
frankly, that leaves me a bit flat because I'm like, well, I haven't experienced a miraculous healing. She is doing something that I've commended, right? She's actually talking about physical healing for a physical healing miracle. She's talking about it in such a, a vague way, though, that I that I don't think it is necessarily fruitful. So she's missing the point of the text, which is not miraculous healings. The miraculous healings are a sign pointing back at the point of the text, which Jesus is making abundantly clear. Jesus can forgive sins. That's the authority that matters. That's the authority that endures eternally. Healings come and healings go. We don't stake our lives on being healed. As soon as you get one healing, you're probably going to need another one at some point right. or something else. Exactly so. And and so and what he's doing is he's not shunning the Pharisees, he's inviting them to believe. The Pharisees are us. And when we turn the Pharisees into a them, we let ourselves off the hook and and in a way that doesn't let us experience Christ the way we should. She's missing all of that. This is who he is. This is what he does. He is a miracle working God and he does miracles through his spoken word. And at the very same time, I've walked through things I do not understand almost to the day I had to bury someone who was like a second father to me due, due to brain cancer close to Jamie as well, here on the Keys. We believe God. We fasted. We prayed. He was a man of God and righteousness, but God didn't heal him. Yes, he did. <laughs> what is what, what is in the mind of people when, yes, they, they've got a loved one that they desperately want to live, but God takes them home to glory, and somehow that's not an answer to prayer? What, what, what is going on with people? Why are they in thinking jail when it comes to God and Him answering our prayers, especially the prayers of taking a beloved saint home to glory? Well, if you don't have in your view eternity, that's when you say things like this. Which you've already made this statement earlier that the sermon is... It's a, you know, she's got a little God because everything is focused on the here and now rather than what is to come, which is what the Bible tells us not to be so concerned about this momentary light affliction right. that we're going through. Which is the same thing that Second Corinthians talks about. The, the fact that we have eternity in view gives us courage and strength for the now. The way she is saying this is, is being spoken by a person who, who doesn't quite get that yet. It's hard to go into somebody's room who's dying and saying healing is coming because that this is the thinking of the world. We cannot think of God's ultimate healing as coming through death, even though we see it in Christ, even though we believe in Jesus, even though we believe in eternal life. It is part of our growth as Christians to be able to look at death and not as a good thing because death isn't a good thing, but, but as a bad thing through which God's ultimate goodness happens. I can't tell you how many times I have sat with someone who is on the verge of death and said, let's recite the Apostles' Creed. And we go through the Apostles' Creed, and when it talks about, I believe in the resurrection of the body, I will always stop right there. And I will say, whose body is the creed talking about? And guess what they all say? There's only been like a handful of exceptions. Guess who they all say? Jesus. I'm like, no! Right, we already talked about <laughs> Jesus. Are, Jesus has already ascended! Yeah. Right, whose body is this talking about? 
right. your body. Yeah, exactly. And, oh. The it, perishable putting on the imperishable, the immortal putting right. on the immortal. Right. That's, that's why it's so fundamental to us. But it's hard. I mean, I, I get it, but a pastor bringing God's truth or a, or a lady pastor bringing God's truth needs to get this because you're you're gonna you're you're putting you're making the people hearing you short-sighted. You're right. But the problem I have is is the people who the lady pastor is talking to. They've only been catechized in the here and now. The problem I have is going to lifelong Lutherans and them still suggesting that when the Apostles' Creed talks about the resurrection of the body, it's talking about Jesus. Like we're back in third grade Sunday school and every answer to the question is Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. And that's what we're dealing with every day. All the time. Yeah. All the time. All right, let's get back to her. She's almost done. She's almost done with this train wreck he took his life and we buried him and i just speak at that funeral and we don't know why but this is what we did his wife and me and jamie and others we had worship at his funeral and everyone was just on their knees just we don't know why god but we're gonna worship you anyways we don't know why sometimes god heals and sometimes he doesn't but I do know he is God and he has authority and he even all that can be good I just talked to his wife the other day I said how are you doing she says all I can tell you is God is a good God she's young widowed she's young on her own so much life ahead of her and she says I don't know he and all I can tell you is I've experienced a God who holds you upholds you he's good he's being my husband he's being God is being my provider He's being my protector. Jesus healed through one spoken word. This I know. Woo. When you get in the presence of Jesus and give his word permission to have authority in your life and situation, you will not be the same. Mark chapter 2, it says this, and the man jumped up grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers. Oh my gosh. He's walking. Probably scared. Is this some weird voodoo stuff? What is going on? Grabbed his mat and walked through the stunned onlookers. Verse 10. So I will prove to you your thoughts, your questions, your doubts, your concerns, your faith versus logic, struggle, and tribal trouble. So I will prove to you that I am the Son of Man and I have authority on you. Ah! I'm kind of upset with myself for choosing this sermon. Well, maybe you should be because <laughs> this is this is actually taking us to a very bad place. Oh. And it's taking us to a place where where faith becomes uh, like wisps of smoke. And to to say to these people that in the face of death you say, "We don't know what's going on, uh, but we but you're powerful and good." is the wor- I, I think it's one of the worst things you can say because God has put his word on death. And it is insanity 
for a person who claims to be a teacher of God's word to act like this is an uncertain thing. The goodness, God's goodness isn't unknown in the death of this man or the death of any Christian. God's goodness is known because that person is with God now. He has followed Christ from death to life. This is how we confront death as Christians. We don't confront it with, well, I don't know, God. I don't know why you took this person away from me, but I'm going to love you anyway. If you don't know why and and you think God could be that capricious with you, what reason do you necessarily have to keep loving them? What what a sad funeral this must have been to not be able to say to these people, this man lived a life shorter than what we would hope for. He's left behind things and, and we've got a family to look after. But man, isn't it going to be good to see him again and see him forever and see him perfected and just as we will be perfected. That's our hope. And and then she's done this other thing at the very end here where she, she pits faith and logic against each other. And really, she's the, the whole summation here is you just got to believe. As you're in the presence and <laughs> as you allow God's word to have permission. Right. I, but... Oh, it, it, this is so frustrating to me because this is the way that like Mormons talk, right? You've just got to feel that burning in your bosom, mm-hmm. right? This is not the way Christians talk. Right. Christians say, I, I, I don't just have to believe. I believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. And this is the argument of the New Testament, of the epistles. Because Jesus died and rose again, And because you've been connected to that in baptism, you too, in death, will necessarily rise again. It is grounded in a historical fact, which is is perfectly logical and reasonable and grounded in history. We're not just talking about, see, this is what happens when you turn your faith into smoke. You just got to believe. But that is not our faith. Our faith is a grounded faith. And our faith is built on Christ's death and resurrection. Our faith is not built on nothing. It makes sense if you believe in the historical truth of Christ's death and resurrection. And that's what we build upon. And that's why we keep our eyes fixed on eternity. Because that's where Christ says to look. All right. I really debated on this last little salvo that she's getting ready to give. And uh, I'm going to include it. I mean, look, bro, we are at like three hours in critiquing these two sermons. I can't believe we don't even charge for this much content. I know, I know. I mean, people (laughs) could watch Gone with the Wind or listen to this. So let's just listen to this because I told you earlier how I cut out so many of her little personal stories. Well, this is going to be her last little personal story, and I, I want you to hear it. Do you know that's how I gave my life to the Lord? High school girl, preacher's kid, faking it till I make it. A church on Sundays and Wednesdays and Bible studies, sitting in the front row with my mom, but living like the devil during the week. Don't believe me? Ask Jamie. She was there for all of it. Don't write a book, Jamie, about me. Sneaking boys in my house, out late, doing things I shouldn't be doing. I've seen mir- seeing miracles from my own eyes, but not real to me. One night, though, made some bad decisions, did some things that were not good. One night in my basement, 
kind of actually out of frustration, to be honest. This preacher's kid bowed her knee and literally said, with a little bit of an attitude, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. If you're real, prove it. If you're real, prove it to me. To me. I know it's real for my mom and dad. I know it's real for those people at that church, but prove it to me. I need to feel you. I need to know this is real. I need to open up this Bible. My parents make me read it. It needs to make sense to my brain. You got to do something. You got to prove yourself. You got to make my love for you be greater than sneaking these boys who are high on drugs into my house at nighttime and scaring my baby brother and making decisions that aren't wise. God, you got to prove it to me. And nothing happened. No lightning bolts, no thunder, no ground shaking, nothing. I think I was hungry and I left the room and I got a snack. But the next day I got to school and this guy I was hanging out with who shouldn't, back in 1990-something, the cool thing to do is to take your hand and slide it down the back pocket of your girlfriend's pants. Stupid. He took that hand, he slid it on down the pants and put it down my back pocket. And for, I don't know what happened, but I turned around and looked at him and I said, if you put your hands on my pants one more time, I'm going to break it. It's like, Okay. Then I, going around school, I went to say something, say an inappropriate curse word, and I said it, and it was like the Holy Spirit just gut punched me. Listen, Jesus will talk to you how he needs to. This is how Jesus got to deal with me. It was like, oh, like I literally felt sick. I had a friend, she brought, snuck some little like alcohol bottles in. We're dumb, dumb little teenagers. She's like, hey, after, you know, third period, meet me in my locker. I got some whatever. I was like, okay. Went to her locker, went to grab it. My hand trembling, shaking. I couldn't put the bottle to my mouth. And also I was like, oh my gosh. God is running after me. He's proving himself to me. And then I would open up the word of God and I started in Proverbs because that's what my dad told me to do. And I'd read Proverbs and all about wisdom. And it was like the words of God were coming off the page. So listen, the life you see me live today, the life you see Jacob live today, those of you who know us, you've been in our home, you know who we are behind closed doors. It's not because we're seeking perfection. It's not because we're prideful. It's not because we're preachers and we got to live this life. The life we live today is it's because we have experienced a God who has changed us, saved us, taken us from darkness to light, and we can't help but live in that miracle. And the same is for you today. Breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough. The Spirit of God has brought you to the house of God today. So you do not live another year in the same place. He is a God of miracles. So I will prove to you that I am the Son of Man. I will heal you. I will restore you. I will take back everything the enemy has stolen from you and return it not once, not twice, but tenfold. Church, if you want that, if you need that, if you believe that, say amen. Amen. Jamie was getting a real workout on that, wasn't she? She was really starting soft and building. Yeah, yeah. And uh, But this was the second service, so they already had a, yeah. you know, a, a run through. Right. Again, this was saying what you wanted to say and then using personal anecdotal yeah. stories that none of us can prove. I mean, maybe Jamie could prove. Right. But it's there to make the point that Mark chapter 2 is all about finding your breakthrough. Yeah, and you breaking through to God instead of God breaking through to you. It, right. and, and, and when, which is funny because, 
even her story is about God breaking through to her, right? And stopping yeah. her hand and doing this stuff. Yeah, she was the one who said, it, prove it to me in a snarky way. I need to yeah. feel it, and then I'm going to go get a snack. Right, and and when we ask God to prove it to us, uh, he points us to Jesus. That's the proof, that, and that's the whole point. I, I guess I have some sympathy with what she's saying because I, I think we all want at some level, it, I think there's always a point in our Christian life where we're like, I need something tangible out of this uh this relationship with God out of church, out of, out of whatever. And this is why a correct understanding of the Bible leads us to those tangible things. Number one, it is the waters of your baptism trickling off your forehead. Yeah. Number two, it is the pastor absolving you of all of your sins that you hear in your ear. And number three, it is the very tangible, tactile body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ given, just like Isaiah 6, upon your lips for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Right. Uh, and isn't it amazing how the eyes are the least trustworthy thing in all of that. <laughs> right, right. And, and so what she's done, and, and right, she's talked about encountering Jesus and, and being in his presence and all of those things. But what it, what is 100% clear from her perspective is that that is an emotional encounter. Well, she said it. I need to feel it. Right. And which is the definition of the enthusiast. Exactly so. Uh, and and that isn't to say that, that there aren't times and places where we do sure. feel. God gave us emotions and, right. he, and he engages with us emotionally. But they don't drive the train. That's exactly so. They're the caboose. <laughs> and... The emotions, I feel, are based on the tangible things, the outside of myself things, in fact. And so I know we talk about this all the time, but it's always good to be reminded of that. We always want to build ladders to God, towers to God. And the three ladders we build are emotional. We also want to build intellectual. And we also want to build workspace. I know God loves me because I'm doing good. She hinted at that a little bit, right? It wasn't just that she felt God's love, but that she couldn't do the bad stuff anymore. And this is kind of the amazing thing. We do have a breakthrough every Sunday in the absolution, in remembrance of our baptism or in baptism itself when we have it, and in the Lord's Supper. That's God breaking through to us. And that's why church is heaven on earth, because heaven is breaking through to us in that moment. God's grace is surrounding us and God's presence is there. Yes, there are Sundays when I feel it, and there are Sundays when I don't feel it. Your feelings are fallen. Yeah, of course. And God's presence is there regardless. Right. If I'm distracted, you know, my, you know, and as pastors, we don't have to wrangle our kids in the pews, right? We're up there doing this stuff. Our poor wives are distracted with the kids. There's some Sundays where I'm like, what do you think about that sermon? And, like, I didn't hear it. <laughs> right, because I was wrangling kids. And that's okay. I mean, it's it's not it's not the ideal by any stretch, but was God still there in his presence and doing what he was supposed to do? Of course he was. Okay, if there's anybody who has made it all the way to the end of this critique of these two sermons, I know you think I'm crazy, but on the way over here, I was listening to another sermon from this church a year later. 
okay? Mm-hmm. And it's our same lady pastor. I don't know if she's preaching the sermon because I'm only two minutes into it or if she's giving some sort of kind of advertisement on what they drop for Sunday services. But I just want you to hear it. It's only just a couple seconds long. Take a listen. And I'm going to play it on my phone. Okay. I hope you are ready for the Word of God today. And here at Thrive, we just believe that there's nothing greater we could do than preach God's Word. And that's what we do here at Thrive Church. We preach the Word of God. Not the opinion of man, not the feelings of humans. We preach the Word of God. And because of that, I want you to know today that the dry places in your life... Okay, whatever. Here's my question. Did she preach the Word of God? In the sermon that we just listened to? No. She used it as a tool to preach her pious opinion about how to have a a better life today. Huh. And I I hope you can see that, of course, false teachers, Satan himself, used God's word manipulatively. And we're not going to pretend that Satan was preaching God's word when he was tempting Jesus with it. Come into sermons testing always test those spirits and let the word govern what is what is happening in the sermon if the word is being used to kind of bounce us into some kind of self-help or or some kind of very worldly way of understanding things you know that that things have been flipped on their head but if god's word is challenging us to see the world and ourselves in a different way in and in a way that's in accordance with scripture then you know you've got something. But here on the tail end, for her actually to be doing what she's doing, in that she is calling herself a pastor in Christ's church, which God's Word completely forbids, for her to be standing up doing what she's doing, not just saying what she's saying, but doing what she's doing, we're already, before she's ever said one word, something's already a miss. Absolutely. I, I don't want to probe the, the mysteries of, of why she's doing this, even though God's word clearly speaks against it. That is one of the more challenging areas of our faith in this day and age, because we want to be egalitarian and we want to say that men and women are the same, even though we know kind of fundamentally that they're not. Uh, biologically, we know they're not, uh, but we also know emotionally and, 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 and abroad because we, we, we're, we're complementary. And complementary things aren't the same. They they are things that work well together, even though they are different. Um, it, it isn't a judgment on her as a as a woman or even as a Christian, other than the fact that she has, um, for one reason or another, chosen to completely disregard this aspect of God's word. But if we were to use her cue that she said earlier by getting in the presence of God, whatever that means. And then allowing God's word to have permission. She doesn't have the permission. And that has to be said with some humility. Uh, because we we don't measure up to the standards of what a pastor is supposed to be scripturally either. Apart from the forgiveness in Christ. Sure. Uh, the, there's a difference here though in that she doesn't need per- forgiveness for being a woman. I need forgiveness for being some of the things that scripture talks about a pastor needing to be. Um, she doesn't need forgiveness for being a woman. It's a category that's not a matter of, of sin or not sin. It's simply a category of of headship and, and created order. But these things challenge us too. 
right? I mean, I'm I'm as much a product of of this world and this time as anybody else, and I don't want to see them. You know, I don't want women barefoot and pregnant and home or anything like that. But I also see a clear boundary that God has put around this special office, right? And it would be our lives would be so much easier if we could just ignore that boundary. We we could get along with the world in so many ways if we could just say, "Yep, doesn't matter." And, and that's true of so many things that, that what the world wants us to believe what we can't. Homosexuality, abortion, I mean the the list gets longer and longer seemingly every year. We draw those lines not because they're pleasing to us and our own prejudices and or or sense of how the world should be. We draw those lines because God's word draws those lines. And we're going to let God's word govern us instead of us governing God's word. You've heard two sermons, same text. Yeah. Both interpretations are Yahoo. Right. So sum up everything you've heard for our people, for the one person, for my mother, who has made it all the way through three hours of listening to us and these Yahoos. The Bible isn't about self-help. The Bible is about Jesus and eternity. And if we lose sight of that, we lose everything. And using the text from Mark 2, what's it really about? The forgiveness of sins. Which was not emphasized with either. No. Lady pastor or Vince with the untucked shirt.